So here we are, Ducks Don't Get Cold Feet, podcast number 22, the incredibly talented Matt Tarrant. Mate, how are we? Very good. So excited to have you here, Matt. But I must say, if people don't know you, well, they definitely aren't from Adelaide, but you've been Adelaide Fringe Award winner 2012. 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 19. <laughs> we don't talk about 2018. We do not talk about 2018, but it's an unbelievable effort. It's huge, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's happened before, to be honest. So um, I do claim that that's like, you know, unheralded. Um, but yeah, it's a... It's been a lot of fun, the Adelaide Fringe, for me, to be honest. And, yeah, since 2012, I've been going on, and I've actually I'd started two years prior to that, but it just wasn't my own show. Um, so this is my 10th year at the Adelaide Fringe this year, so it's been a long journey and experience for Ma- sure. Magician, mentalist, producer, creator, performer. There's so many things that are going on to your um, schedule, your rule book. It's amazing to actually have that all in one little part right here in front of me. I like to do it all. And I think I, I like to have that ownership of it all. Um, so yeah, when it comes to like the production and the creation of everything, like even the content and like the, the graphics and video, it's pretty much all me. So it's um it's a lot to take on. And, you know, a lot of artists are like that, but I think I probably own more of it um, than most, especially probably at the, I don't want to say the level that I'm at, but you know, when you get to that sort of stage, you do start to hire people. But um, yeah, I just quite, I've always quite enjoyed that side of it as well. So so we've got to go back. I want to go back into how you first of all got into this and like all good magicians, you, you come around with a pack of cards. Yeah, I've got cards there. Yeah, uh, I've noticed that's a thing. Yeah, we always carry decks of cards with us. <laughs> and like young magicians in particular, you will find that if they have a, a conversation with someone, if they try to talk to a, another human being, we can't, we struggle to communicate. It's just a thing magicians have. But if you have a deck of cards in your hand, oh my Lord, instantly it's like you're on you're absolutely a, you're a human being for a second. So it's quite cool. Like that happens. And um, yeah, I feel like hopefully now I've got better people skills than I did as a kid. But at the <laughs> beginning, you're always in a deck of cards. It's like a comfort, like a little blankie almost. So if we have a look at how you, you've you gone down that track, so let's go back before that. And we'll go back to where whereabouts were you you're brought up in Adelaide? Yeah, Adelaide boy. So I grew up in Glenelg. So yeah. I went to Glenelg Primary uh, and then went to Brighton Secondary as a kid. Um, so always been a, a, a local. Uh, grew up in Adelaide. And um, yeah, I, I don't ever see myself leaving here, to be honest. I've, I absolutely love it. You know, I've been fortunate enough to travel the world, but I always, always come back here and this is where I want to be. So what were you like at school? Like, were you, did you, you know, I'm guessing <laughs> you might have been a bit quiet. Um, low self-esteem, um, a bit hard to talk in front of people. I don't know. I'm just, cause I'm guessing you pick up magic because it's something that people gravitate to people that are doing magic tricks. Bang on. Yeah. I and mean, you probably thought you might be able to pick up some chicks. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you've obviously read my autobiography, which is in my head. Um, cause that is pretty much bang on. Um, you know, when I was in school, I was a sort of kid that didn't have a lot of friends. I definitely didn't have, you know, um, I, I had best friends, but they probably, I wasn't their best friend, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, so I was kind of always around, but I wasn't really, you know, anyone's person. Um, I would never, you know, go to too many parties and that sort of thing. When it came to days at school where I had to do, like, do a group presentation, I would always be sick. I didn't want to talk or be in front of people or crowds. So magic for me was definitely a way to, um, you know, talk to humans and, you know, kind of become like a focal point of the party and become like, 
I guess in my head, a cool kid. Yeah. I probably didn't realize that magic's maybe not considered the most coolest thing in the world as well. So don't know if it worked, um, but it definitely was a way for me to, I guess, communicate with people. So what age does this all start? I didn't really get into magic until I was like 17. Yeah. But I had like gone to magic shows prior to that. And I, I saw this magician when I was around nine years old at the Adelaide Fringe. His name was Rudy Kobe. And Rudy's this like American illusionist. And uh, I remember really vividly that night because I, I loved his show. I was so nervous. I had to drink like ginger ale before the show because I was just feeling sick and unwell. And um, I watched him and I just, I loved what he did. But I think I was so young, I didn't realize I could learn those skills and I just assumed he was some sort of wizard that could have these powers. Yeah. So then when I was like 16, 17, I started to learn some simple card tricks and then by the time 18, 19, it was something that I really wanted to do. So I, I just started. So you just started with card tricks yeah. straight off? I, I went to the Adelaide Fringe one night again and there was this magician on the streets doing like uh, just stunt magic and some card magic and whatever and he was good but I didn't feel that same kind of sense of like love of magic than I did when I was a young kid. So I just sort of spoke to this guy afterwards and it turns out he worked at the exact same place I worked at in the exact same office, in the exact same room and had the exact same shifts and he ended up just saying, oh, I'll teach you some stuff. So he taught me the real basics of magic and how to learn how to become a magician and it just went from there and I just geeked out over it and I became obsessed with it. So this is probably, this is, you would have had, YouTube and whatnot? Probably not. Probably, probably not. Probably back just then. before. So yeah. you were predominantly this is someone showing you mm. and reading. Mm. Seriously, it was reading. There were maybe some like DVDs, maybe CD ROMs probably back then. Yeah. Like we're talking a while back. Yeah. The internet was probably slightly becoming a thing, but we're probably still talking like the days of MySpace and stuff, maybe. Yep. So yeah, it wasn't maybe as accessible, but I was kind of in this sort of perfect area where as I was growing in magic, so was the online world as well. So it meant that I could kind of learn more from other people as it kind of grew, but it wasn't too late that people had already been there. So like I was one of the first users on like the forums for magic websites. So like this big website called Theory 11, which is done by the, like it was meant to be the 11 biggest magicians at the time. I was like the eighth user or something on it. So it meant that I was talking to all these really big names and I became friends with them. And, you know, Chris Kenner, who's Copperfield's producer, sent me a gift. He sent me his like original book signed to me just because I was one of the few people on this forum. So I was really fortunate. It's kind of all happened at the right time. Wow, that's awesome. Just like that. Yeah, it's seriously, I, I was talking to on this forum, it was his future wife at the time she wasn't, they were just dating and we just sort of got chatting. And then it turns out she then married Chris and then we became kind of friendly through that. And then he just started sending me like cards and books. And then when I went to Vegas and when he came to Adelaide, we caught up, we had cocktails, we just chatted about magic. And I was in this like hotel room with David Copperfield's executive producer showing me magic. Like, and that sounds very dodgy, I know, but it wasn't like that. It We've was, heard some things about David Copperfield. <laughs> <laughs> His manager is completely different. But, um, but it was just like the most incredible experience. Like, and for a kid that was just getting into magic and at the time was rubbish, like, yeah, I, I was terrible at the time, but I was showing him things and he was like, that's really good. Like, you, you know, keep going. So that was a really, really cool thing for me. And that definitely helped, I guess, push me to continue doing it. So did you meet David Copperfield? Yeah, yeah. I met him a couple of times now. So not um, not as much as I, I, you know, got to interact with Chris because David's probably a little bit more of a, uh, like a close 
perfect person, I guess. Um, but yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of stories and he definitely lives in a different world than you and I. Like there was a period where- He's a magician. I mean, yeah, but he's like, at, at one point he was in the top 10 like entertainers for income wise in the world. He was dating Claudia Schiffer, you know, I think he was even married to Claudia and like, he was this huge name. He's got his own islands and he went into magic at like such a young age. He was a huge name from the beginning. So he, he hasn't lived a normal life like any of us else have. So I understand why he's maybe a little bit, little bit different. <laughs> Maybe uh, don't, I, I don't understand I, everything is done. No, no, <laughs> Maybe no, some I, of it. I, I, I'm not. I, hey, I'm not having a go at him. I'm not like at all. Um, let's face it. He put the magic scene on the map. Seriously, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, you can go back to Houdini and all of these other magic people. Well, it's technically what they're doing. They're mm. showing people something that you th you sit there and go, "What? What did I just see? Must have been magic." And you've got a quote. Somewhere along the lines of uh, my goal as a magician is not to fool you. My goal is to make you believe in magic again. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's bringing people back to the memory that I have as a kid, as that eight-year-old seeing that first show and just being like, wow, that is impossible. That guy truly is a wizard. And when you sit and watch something, you can actually really appreciate that if you're so close and you're watching a trick being done and it's like, fuck, how the hell did that happen? Yeah. So... We had Vin on here recently, and and he talked uh, he talked a lot about the box of tricks or you know some, something that they you never share with anyone, uh, and it was interesting to see how that comes about with when something you know new tricks about, and I was like, is that how it really works? Like people are pretty closed closed off about sharing a trick. It depends. There are some magicians that aren't. I mean, I'll be honest in saying I'm someone that's relatively okay if people are guessing how my tricks work. And I will, I probably won't tell them, but I'm not going to be completely closed off by it either. But there's this weird world in magic where there's obviously the magicians who perform, like I'm a magician who performs, but there are also magicians who create and they don't perform. They just come up with magic tricks and then they put them in books, they put them on DVDs, they sell them online yep. and that's what they do. Like, and Vin, for a while, was one of those guys. He would do – he had his own little um, encyclopedia of magic where he taught people tricks. But there are people that come up with those tricks and they sell them. So I've got guys that work on my show who would never, ever be able to get up on stage and do a show, but they just have this creative mind where they can come up with ideas on how to put together tricks, and that's what they do. And they share it with other magicians, so, just not the public. So have you come up with your own trick? Yeah. Have I got, you? I got, I got a couple. I got a couple. Okay. I don't sell them though. They, they're just mine. So I put them in my own show. But if I do, you know, eventually decide I don't want to do this anymore, I might sell some of them. I don't know. Okay. See, it's amazing. What do you want? Do you want to buy something? <laughs> no, always selling. <laughs> always selling. Uh, Adelaide Fringe, uh, back on again. It was tainted as the last show to happen before COVID truly hit and the first show to come back on air and probably this is probably one of the largest events it probably full stop is the largest event. Uh, unlike Melbourne, we can actually have an event here and everyone go to it. Yeah. So when when you you started back for going to the fringe like ten years ago or so, what sort of what sort of a person were you then? Were you then compared to how you are now? So twenty ten was my first ever fringe, and I did it as part of a like variety lineup show and. Um, uh, yeah, I was pretty shy. I was pretty terrible. Um, and, uh, you know, I definitely didn't have the, the confidence that I probably have now up on stage. But I think I was still relatively good um, to a point. Like I got away with, you know, those other things because I was okay at magic. 
And I remember this show, I felt like despite the fact that I was the youngest person in this lineup, I probably did the best. Now that might just be completely like yeah, overconfidence, like <laughs> but I just kind of feel like the rest was a bit of a mess. Yeah. Um, but then there was a lot of issues with like the guy who put together this event and it was, I don't know, just not very well produced and there was a lot of issues and I didn't do it again with him. I just, that was, I didn't want to do that. But I realized that maybe I wanted to learn how to do that stuff myself. So it helped me to learn those things and to push myself to learn those things. Then the next year I worked with that guy that originally taught me how to become a magician and we did a show. It's called Blackheads. Don't know why, terrible name, but he called it Blackheads. And it was in the garden of Unofi Delights and it was like a street magic show just in the park there. Yep. We did this show and it was all the money raised was going to the Women's and Children's Hospital. We did a, a show for half an hour. We probably raised 900 bucks and it went really, really well. And I was stoked. And then at the end of the show, we're packing up our stuff and these two people walk up, one wearing a suit and this other lady. And they came up to us and they're like, sorry, who the hell are you two? And I was like, oh, like you'll have to talk to my mate over there. He's the guy that's put this on. We don't know who you are and why you're here. You shouldn't be doing a show in here. This is this is like a private space. You haven't organized this. You need to get out. We've called the cops. So this guy had told me he'd set this venue up, he'd set this space up. But what had happened, we just rocked up into the garden and just did a show. And when we were doing the show, because people were getting free entertainment, they weren't buying tickets for the shows around us. <laughs> so all these venues complained. They called the cops on us. And literally my two first experience with the Fringe were a situation where the producer absolutely messed me around to the point we got taken out by the cops of this garden. And I was like, I, I, I can't do that again. I've got to do this all myself. So that's what I did. The next year I did it all myself. Wow, what an introduction to the, the management style. And then for all your amazing – you've won awards practically – <laughs> every year. Yeah. We don't talk so, about 2018. So so practically every year. So you're doing something that's something right and you've been a little bit of everywhere. So there's there's a few interesting things I saw you on TV shows and you're not afraid to do a show here and there. I'll do anything. Yeah, I'll, I'll do almost any show that people want me to do really. Um, so I've done some interesting and weird things but – yeah, I just, I just love performing, mate. So, you know, if I can get up on a stage, I would genuinely do it, yeah. So when we're talking about the tricks that you provide, do you, do you mate, is there something that you think you're a specialty in? Like, um, and I, li I like the term a mentalist. Yeah, see, mentalism is something that I'm, I really enjoy, which is like that mind magic, like the mind reading, the mind um, like predictions and this sort of stuff. So I really enjoy that and I think... I'm really good at it, uh, but I'm very different to most other mentalists because they kind of do it and they pretend or they'd say that they have this actual ability to like actually read a mind where I'm kind of a bit more jovial about it. Like, cause I'm, I mean, you're well aware that I don't actually know what's happening in your mind right now. Well, like you humans, never know. Well, Some I'm telling you, no one can do that. <laughs> if they could, I would know how. <laughs> they can't. And I'm happy to say that. I'm ha absolutely happy to say that everything I'm doing is a trick. But I'm going to make it seem so incredible that you have no other solution to that. That actually is real magic. But because I do magic as well as mentalism, it kind of allows me that opportunity to combine magic and mentalism in a trick where I can do the mind reading stuff but play it off as a trick and do tricks but playing it off as mind reading. So Look, it kind of just confuses the audience. They so, don't know what's really going so on. So let's go into the mentalism. I got prepared for today. I watched Focus okay, last night. Okay. Other than Margot Robbie's extremely freaking attractive. 
Um, if my wife like, is listening, I've never, I've never noticed. I don't even know who that oh actor is. Oh my god! Like, yeah. So another, no, just another excuse to watch Margot Robbie. But you watch that movie, and there's one scene in particular. There's a lot of pickpocketing and a lot of you know reading people to see what they can get and, and trying to predict people's behaviour, which they do through the whole movie. One of the scenes there was when he goes to the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and they meet this. Willin or whatever his name, some some guy that's gambling up there, and they start to do some bets, small bets, I'll be it on next throw, blah blah blah. But evidently, it gets to the big bet, and it's like you know, you get someone to you you look into the crowd and pick any single person, and then their number, um, their number and who it is, no, just a number of any single person there. And bear in mind, you've got a whole team of people playing. You've got the whole you know, a hundred thousand people or something like that. And then he goes, oh, and she'll pick her, right, so, which is Margot Robbie. And then in that scene he sits and I've been working them all day. Do you think that that can actually happen? Because what they do, they, they basically blast him with a recognisable face that he sees honking the horn and they see the number 55 and they, sh- they talk about how they lead on to, oh, we sort of knew he was going to predict with a 50% like, chance he's going to pick number 55. Does it really work like that? I mean, to an extent, you could do that potentially, but it, like, it's not going to be surefire. Like, that's not going to work every time. Well, if he you said were to try 50, to do it that he way. actually said he said fifty five percent chance. I mean, maybe yeah. I don't know. I, don't, <laughs> I haven't done the math. <laughs> math was ever my strong suit in school, but like, you you can definitely do things that incorporate that. But as a magician, I don't want it to be a potential fifty. 5% chance of it going well, which is why I add magic to it. Because if you go into a show and only 55% of the time <laughs> You're in trouble. the tricks work, it's it's not a good time. So that's why you have to kind of combine those things. But, I mean, there are definitely ways you can influence people for sure. I mean, everyone knows. There are definitely things you can do to do that. To the extent of doing that, it really depends, I think, and how much control you kind of have of that situation. So when you're asking for someone's number mm. between 1 and 40 is mm-hmm. what you go with, How are, is there any cue that you're getting from someone to get that freaking number? Or how the hell are you doing it? Because there's 40, you know, you've got a 1 in 40 chance. Mm-hmm. But when you see that you get the number right for five people, I don't know, is that magic? See, the thing is, if I answer that question, yeah, it starts to reveal away. things. Oh, okay, okay. And that, right. that's, that's the worry with magic because you, you, you want to say something because I could lie to you right now and say, you know, of course I Can I tell you person. what I feel about it? Yeah, of course you can. Okay, because since you're not going to answer, but do you see something in the pupil or something that recognises when you've got that right or wrong in a number or can suggest or, you know, is there – because I, I I had a little bit of a look at how people can say that they see the pupil dilate a bit more, which means that that's right mm-hmm. or wrong if you're talking about, you know, what – you know, draw a picture and they get that – actually figure out what you've drawn and things like that. That's what I think happens. And I think some I, – because I, you look at people, it's really hard to see a movement there and I think, fuck, that's clever. But then I look at how do you get like four or five people right in a row when you're not even hardly looking at them. So it all it's almost irrelevant. It's like, you know, have you gone through Facebook and checked out what their favourite numbers are? and Or are some people just really predictable? Like See, do you have a chart that goes, okay, that, you know, kids under the age of whatever? Because you, you do suggestive things. Think of something more in your adulthood. Like these were the things you were saying. So you're like you're looking for a higher number, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
my answer depends on if I'm answering it as a magician or if I'm answering it as Matt Tarrant. And if I answer it as a magician, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying and saying, yep, you're bang on. I'm looking into the pupils. I'm looking into the smile. But if I'm answering as Matt Tarrant, I'm saying you're going to be really disappointed if you knew how this worked. That's what Vin says. Vin said exactly the same thing. He goes, you're going to be like, yeah, it's better that it's just magic. The absolute worst thing about being a magician is the fact that you're a magician because you know how it all works and you learn. And some of the tricks that I watched as a kid, some of the tricks that I watch now, I'm going, that is, he's looking into the pupils. That rabbit really disappeared. That's amazing. And then you buy the trick and you're like, oh, okay. Yep. I was fooled by that. And that, that's not that great. And it sucks. It sucks. So if you're not a magician, the best thing I can say to do is just try to keep your mind in that spa- that space where you're a child and you are just, that is really magic. Because the more you know about it, the more disappointing it is, I can assure you. <laughs> so just take it as just magic. take it as it is. Because it is impressive. It absolutely is. And that's why I love it as well. And it becomes a different thing for me because despite the fact that I know how everything works, I enjoy your response to that. You know, I enjoy you questioning all these things and having all these different ideas and seeing where your mind is working because that's the thing that entertains me and that's the thing that brings me joy now because I like to hear that. Because I can't really enjoy magic as much anymore. I can't enjoy watching a magician because in my head I'm always going, okay, that's what he did there. I saw that move. I saw that card go there. I I, I know that now and that sucks. I'm lucky because I've got a good enough mind that I can turn that off for a second while I watch magic shows now. Yeah. So I just enjoy it. So Yeah, that's what I was, I was going to say. Do you enjoy what or you're always sitting there going, oh. I do. My wife, she hates them now though <laughs> because she knows how all my stuff works because she's been backstage to all my shows. So when we went and saw Copperfield, when we went and saw Penn and Teller, she knew how it all works and she's like, oh, I saw that. And I'm like, just ignore it. Enjoy it. And she can't. She's She just has a mind that just is always switched on with it. I'm lucky. I can turn my mind off a little bit. So I can just be a kid again and watch magic. And you have to if you're a magician. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. If you're talking about, okay, so you're not giving anything up there. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, you're not going to get it from me. No, no, I get it. I just It just seems like it has to be something. But you watch it and that's the thing. You think, oh, okay, do what you see that goes to air. Has something happened pre, you know, are you in the green room dropping all these? Oh, 13, <coughs> 13, 11, 11. <laughs> uh, with something to stick by the time you get outside. Uh, and you, it, it is the suggestive stuff. Like, oh, something could be in your older adulthood because the number that it was 1 and 40 and one of the numbers was a 36. Mm-hmm. All the numbers were quite low. But for one of them you said, oh, and I was like, yeah, it was, uh, and I've watched that a couple of times with different people and it's bang on every time. That little black box yeah. um, with a printed fucking Kino ticket. Yeah, but it can, that, that ticket can be in my wallet. That ticket can be anywhere. I know so, that, but how, how are you getting it? I don't know. It's it's impressive. Ollie, if you find black box, you should just put it so people can see what I'm actually talking about. Because it did my I actually went and watched you do that multiple times. And you did that at a fringe show. I don't know yeah, if it's your current I did that, one. No, it's not in my current one, but I did that live for a couple of years actually. It's one of my favorite tricks. And it's always one that I go back to because I enjoy exactly what we're going through right now of you trying to work out how it works. And every time someone says something which is close enough to the method. I will bring something into the show that will just completely blow that out of the water. So then it's like, well, okay, now I don't know. Like, <laughs> and when if, if someone changes the number, someone's like, I, but how? I, I don't, I don't know. 
Like, and when I say things like I can do that trick with no backstage assistance, it is literally just me on stage by myself. It adds another element to it. There's all these things you can say and I'm always truthful about the things that I say um, that just makes it more impossible and that's what I love about it. It's a great trick. And I'm, that's, I'm, I mean, that sounds very boasting, but it is a great trick. You didn't even touch the box. No. Nah. And she pulled the paper out of the box. Yep. It's, if that box could print, okay, different story. Mm-hmm. But, but then I show the box is empty and I fold the box oh, into I haven't a tiny... seen that. See, I haven't seen that part, but you could okay. switch that. I know what you're like. No. You guys are, like, <laughs> you guys, you got to watch you guys being a party of you guys. Fucking no one have any watches or wallets Yeah, on you wouldn't anymore at the end of it, but that's for sure. <laughs> Pickpocketers are going to get very annoyed moving into the future because no one will have a freaking wallet. That's it, yeah. <laughs> We're just going to have to walk around with PayPass or something in our pocket. <laughs> it's the best way to do Which it. Which they're already bloody doing. I... <laughs> uh, so uh, I think we might as well talk a bit more about magic. So you got um, some crazy people. Well, Dave Angel, not Dave Angel. Dave Chris, Angel. Chris, Chris, Chris that a- is a good magic name, though. Dave God, Angel. Like Chris Angel. Chris Angel. Dave Angel's a DJ for God's sake. <laughs> um, Chris Angel. He's pretty out there. He's pretty. Yeah. He's he's pretty big. I think his show. He is big. He's in Vegas at the moment, and his show for a while was considered absolutely rubbish. But now it's considered, I think, one of the better magic shows in Vegas. He's he's doing really well. So if you've got a comparison between him and David Copperfield, mm-hmm. totally contrasting styles. Yeah. I mean, that's I guess that's one of the interesting things for me about magic because there are so many different styles. There are magicians who love, like I, I'm currently wearing a black T-shirt and black ripped jeans with Nikes and that is what I wear like on stage. That's what I wear in my real life. I'm just me on stage. Chris is is kind of very similar. He wears um, very gothic-y kind of emo yep. stuff, um, a lot of tattoos and long hair and piercings and whatever, and that's kind of how he is on stage as well. And then Copperfield is very much the old, like, I don't know if he's changed his outfit for 20 years. He's still in the same kind of 90s era stuff and, you know, the old puffy puffy shirts and whatever, like in Seinfeld. Um And that's kind of what he is. But the style of magicians is always really different. And then the style of how we perform magic is also very different too. And as I sort of said before, I'm kind of more of a a casual magician, I think. Like I like to have fun with it. I play along with it. I try to enjoy the magic as much as the audience is enjoying it. Whereas someone like Copperfield is maybe a bit more serious about it and likes to kind of be a bit more um, articulate. Uh, and a bit more scripted or whatever, where I just kind of like to have fun of it. I like to kind of combine the elements of like a, a stand-up comedy show with magic, with myself, with my music, with a whole bunch of different things to make it kind of a bit more me. Um, and that was a funny thing because myself and Vin, we used to perform together. And Did you? Yeah. So we used to have a show together for a number of years. Actually, the 2013 and 14 Fringe Awards were both with Vin and myself. Um, it was a show called Deception. And yeah, Deception was the Vin name. Vin would rock up in a full like black and white suit and I'd be there in like a T-shirt and jeans and he was always like, dude, you have to look apart. Look the part. And I'm like, this is my part. And we tried for the first night. He was obsessed with me having um, a character and, you know, originally because I was wearing black, it was like, oh, you should be the emo guy. You should come up and say it's really dark and quiet and like disgusting stare into the audience like you're angry <gasps> so I did and it was the most embarrassing thing in my life because it was so bad and I looked it was terrible that show was a disaster and then after I'm like you know what Vin I'm gonna ignore that and I'm just gonna just be me on stage and see how it goes and I've done that ever since and it, it just it works oh, that's that's um 
Vin's very good at a lot of things, but yeah, we're very different. So yeah. I, think, I think that's kind of why it worked really well as well. That show, those shows for so many years were fantastic. Like people really loved it. And I think because we were so different, it worked. Why would you go see a magic show if you'd have seen two of the same magicians? The fact yeah, that there yeah. was two completely different ones that somehow could work separately, but also together, it was really, really cool. So with, with your shows that you prepare for, Fringe is a big event, mm. one of the biggest. It's actually, I've just found it. It's one of the biggest fringes in the world. Adelaide Fringe is the second biggest fringe festival in the world, yeah. uh, second to Edinburgh. Um, and we obviously don't like talking about it because of the current situation across the world. But last year it was the biggest festival in the world and it is looking likely like it will be the same again this year just because of what's going on. So it's, um, you know, we obviously don't like to promote that because it sounds a little bit morbid, but um, but that, that's the situation at the moment. It is, it's a monster festival. So you go about a performance for Fringe. Do you look at... You know your New Year's resolution. Are you sitting there going, okay, what what perform? What are we going to come up with this year? Like, is do you have to get think? You know, you watch with comedians; they sometimes have the same gags for years. Mm. But now the internet and YouTube and people can watch all the time. You can't quite do the same tricks all the time. You have to be a bit cautious of what you show online. Mm. Mm. So, do you sit there and have a new routine every year, or you know, you obviously got the best your best tricks that you keep mm -hmm. and you keep using. But do you sit there and go, oh, this year's going to be like you talked to one of your shows, it's called Deception. You know, you could have a show called Mentalist. Like, do you sit there and change? Every year. So we, I made the decision when I first started that I wanted people to be able to come to see the show year after year after year after year after year and follow my journey. So to do that, I felt like I had to change it up. So every year... It's an entirely new show uh, when it comes to branding and name and in general, I would say probably 70 to 80% of the tricks are all new. Yep. We always usually have, as you said, one or two pieces which maybe follow on, um, but it's always different. And that way people do get to come along for that journey. Now this year, because we've had a bit more time, it's an entirely new show. It's Everything in this show is 100% new, which meant three days ago I performed that show for the very first time. time. I had not. Re I hadn't done a rehearsal. I hadn't done a run through of the show whatsoever. I went up on stage and went, "Okay, let's do an hour of brand new script and brand new tricks that I've never performed before, and let's see how it goes." And how? Pretty poorly, um, but that's okay because the second <laughs> night was fantastic. The first uh, night, like the funniest thing, I say pretty poorly. The tricks themselves all worked because I'm relatively confident of that. But when it comes to script, it's probably not my strength. So for me, I always write a script and I try to follow it. And I feel like when I try to follow it, it becomes too disjointed and I fall back on that script too much and it doesn't sound like me. Whereas second night, I just rocked up knowing, okay, these are roughly the things that I want to say. I'm just going to go out and say it. And I'll come up with jokes on the spot. I'll come up with reactions on the spot. And that is, I think, when I shine the best. Yeah. And then from there, I then eventually just it becomes a, a sets a, in a set thing. Yeah. So like last night's show was basically the same as the second night, but I try a few new jokes. If they land, I put them in. If they don't land, re I, back to the drawing. Board. Sometimes I keep them in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I try to change it up as well. So, it just must be the crowd. Yeah, it's the crowd. They don't like that joke. <laughs> There's definitely jokes in the show or tricks in the show which I do just for me. Like, but it's kind of weird because I think the audience kind of like that because. I'm happy, like they see that yeah. I'm enjoying it. And like, it sounds really strange because that shouldn't be a thing, but it does kind of work. Like I had a lot of dad jokes in last year's show and yeah. they all, none of them landed, not a single time. And my stage manager kept being like, dude, 
drop that joke. It is terrible. And I'm like, but the fact that it's terrible is why people enjoy it. And that might be being an idiot because maybe that's completely wrong, but I enjoy that. And my wife's always, I always come up with these stupid ideas. Like a couple of years ago, I wanted to dress up my stage manager as a rabbit and I was going to do this joke about, you know, how this tr- this show, there's no there's no top hats, there's no um, wands and, of course, there's no fucking rabbits. And as I say that, he's going to hop out onto the stage and get really angry because he's in his little stage outfit and he snaps a carrot, throws it at the audience and sulks off. And my wife was like, that is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. So that day I went and bought the a most expensive suit. Easter bunny rabbit suit I could have and that was in my show for 30 shows. And I'm telling you, after every show, people did not care for photos or autographs or whatever with me. They just wanted to oh. meet this bloody rabbit. So the rabbit didn't last very long. I got rid of him because my self-esteem <laughs> took a hit. But um, but that's kind of what it is. The same thing happened two uh, years after. I had this idea about a mind-reading goose and I wanted a goose puppet that could read minds. And my wife was like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So I went and bought a $3,000 goose puppet from the US and I put him in my show. And this thing looked hilariously poor. Didn't look a goose at all. It was made from like sheep's wool and it had this mouth that you could put a Sharpie in it so we could draw things. And he was in my show for four years. And I don't know if the audience enjoyed him or not, but I loved it. It was worth it. He was great. And we produced these like full feature films of him doing things and going through the drive-thru McDonald's and all these hilarious things. And again, no idea if the audience enjoyed it, but I had a bloody good time. (laughs) (laughs) So with Fringe On, how many many shows do you have? Uh, 29 in most years, so 29 this year. So you do one show... A night? Yep. Yeah, one show a night. I used to try to do more, like it would be my one main show and then I'd do like, um, you know, set somewhere else. I'd do like a 10-minute spot here and there. But I, like, I'm feeling old so I can't do that anymore. So like one show a night is kind of it for me and that just I try to put all of myself into that show. Okay. That's a lot. It, it's an hour up on stage by myself. So doing that 20 nights in a row, um, it does take it out of you. It takes it in your voice. It takes it out of you mentally as well. And when you do everything else outside of that hour show, when you're doing the marketing and the sales and all that sort of stuff, it um, yeah, it takes up a lot of time. So it's it's a it's a very much a, a full time thing for the month, if does, not longer. Does it get to the stage where practice makes perfect? Does it get to like halfway through, towards the end? I'm not saying people come to the uh, last few shows, but does it get to a point where you're, you know, you're, you actually 100% know almost to the minute of how things are going to flow? Yeah. I and, always, and where, at what stage does that come about? It really depends, I think, on the situation. I always say to my friends, don't come opening night. It's like unless you want to see either a really good show or a really bad show, don't come opening night because you just don't know. If you want to save 10 bucks on a ticket, come opening night, but it could be rubbish. And it generally normally is, I'll be honest. Is, um, it, is it cheap first night? Is yeah, it is. Yeah, I do that because I don't want people to be too disappointed. So it's always a preview show. Always drop the money off because at least that way if they hated it, well, guys, you did come that cheap night. And then I spend the next night completely with no sleep trying to rewrite the entire show. And I've got so many stories about opening nights where that's gone completely wrong. Um, it happens almost every year. But... I think people now. <laughs> I think people now come for that because that is quite humorous yeah. to see what happens. And I what, think people what understand. Uh, and also, I've been doing shows for so <clears> long <throat> now that even my worst show is far better than it used to be. You know, so at least at the very least, I can kind of go along with it. 
it's a bit of a laugh. The tricks will in general work. Um, it just might be there might be some technical faults or you might see how something works. But people like that as well. Yeah, there's no doubt. I, I feel like you'd like that to see how things work. Like, I like seeing. Yeah, I do. You're going to come up to next year, guarantee. No, nah, I might actually. <laughs> um, we went to see Chris. Oh, I was a hypnotist. Chris um, Isaac or Chris Isaac Loman. Isaac Loman. Isaac Loman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on Saturday night. Okay. Did you enjoy uh, it? Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. I I had one of our friends who's. <laughs> He's an interesting cat, but way he's always over the top, John, if you're listening. And he did this thing at the start and next minute John gets up and walks on stage. And I'm like, what the fuck? We're all looking at each other going, where the fuck's John gone? And he's sitting on stage and you can see him up there looking, looking, and then after about a minute he goes, what the fuck am I doing here? And got, got back down and walked back down. So we, we went to him after and said, what the fuck was going on? And he said, I... I felt the urge to go up there, and then when he was up there, he thought, "What the fuck am I doing here?" Hypnotism's I love hypnotism it's, in a way where I don't know if I believe it, but I also enjoy to pretend to believe it because Isaac's a very good friend of mine, and then there's a lot of other hypnotists that are. Um, well, it's got to do something, like because we were watching, and I was thinking he couldn't have this many people pretending, and I've done a hypnot. Well, I've I've been I've been at a Drake conference, and they called people up on stage. And I went up there and he was doing stuff like, oh, you're on a warm beach and it's hot. And I tried, I got into it. But halfway through, I reckon I just got lost. Mm. So I was like, yep, I'm, I'm in the moment. I was I was there. And then I sort of just lost, lost, lost focus maybe. Hypnotism is a weird thing because for me, I, I'm of the belief that you can't, completely control someone's thoughts or actions. So, like, the hypnos that say, I'm going to wow. make you, like... Well, they, they think they can. Yeah, well, they... No, again, I think they say they think they can. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But I just kind of feel like you're giving the person the um, okay to do the things you want them to do. And then because they feel comfortable in doing that, they will do it and they will go along with it and they feel a bit more free to do things. But I'm not a hypno, so I don't know if that actually is the case. But that's my belief that you can't, I can't hypnotize you and say, go kill that person. No. Unless you actually want to, you're not going to do well, that. Well, some things came up, like, you know, like he, he, you know, you imagine I'm thinking, you know, he's having an argument with his wife and he goes, go to sleep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's got some great benefits. I mean,. <laughs> Maybe it's a thing. I mean, my <laughs> wife was always wondering if I was doing tricks on her when we first met. And, like, it definitely, like, people believe that maybe that's a thing. I don't, I mean, I definitely haven't. Well, but. I, I think it's something because one thing about his show, at the end he goes, hey, I'm based here in Adelaide. Mm. I do help people with weight loss. I do help people with anxiety. I think there's something there. I think getting into the subconscious. Mm. And, and, and the thing when we watch the people on stage because you – we, I had lucky enough to talk to one that we had a conference and he said you can tell when people aren't there and he taps them on the shoulder and said thanks for coming up. And he did it. I noticed this guy did it as well politely because mm. you could see the ones right into it and whether they're right into it because they want it. Like I thought, there was, I, thought, I thought there was a couple of people that were faking it. Me and Isaac have had so many arguments oh, okay. about this. Oh. So, so I, I, I help um, I book him for shows and stuff as well through my other company. Um, 
And it's so funny because I'm so not against hypno, but I just don't know if I believe in everything he wants me to believe in. And it's just such a funny thing that, yeah, the amount of chats I've had about it is uh, is interesting. He's a he's a really good, interesting dude though as well. So he's someone you definitely need to chat to because he um he has some stories, he has some beliefs, and <laughs> I quite enjoy poking, uh, and, poking the bear a little bit. Well, I wouldn't mind because uh, I'm. I, I, you could see there, and I'd, I've seen a couple of hypnotists. Are they called hypnotists? Yeah, huh. yeah. And you could see in, and then I thought, I saw this one kid go, no, nah, that kid's definitely faking it. And one of the things was when the sirens go off, um, you got to pretend, you got to go hide, right? So he's sitting there, and then he does that, the siren goes off, so he hides, right? And then I'm thinking, nah, he's, it's not there. Then he says to him, okay, when the siren goes off, you run outside <laughs> to get away. And the siren didn't go off and he ran outside and then the siren went off, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, that dude's fucking faking it. (laughs) 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 Right? And I go, that dude's fucking, he didn't even listen to the right thing. But the thing that got got my attention was there were a couple of people that seemed right into it. And one of them was a young girl and she was had her friends there. And that's why I think there's something there. I don't think he's got 20 fucking actors in. No, each, he definitely doesn't. Each and I don't and I don't think he does. And and then you watched her, she was out of it. And you could see she was a bit puzzled of what was going on on stage. Like she was doing some shit. And you could you could you could see it. But then she came off and she walked past us and it was like she was half comatized. And and then one of the things they said, if you say Isaac Lohman, they'll howl like a wolf. <laughs> so she walked past and like, Isaac Lohman. <laughs> and and she, I don't think she heard me, but imagine just if she got stuck with that. So she'd, Whoa! I've lost my voice because I was yelling so much. But I look at that and I go, it definitely works. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Mm. how he gets people to that stage and how people want to give himself up to their subconscious. And it's a great show. Doesn't it though? Okay. So this is, this now feels like it's me bashing hypnotists, but no, don't no. you think that if that was possible, then there would be some hypnotist around the world that would be able to control everyone and would have women like at his feet, having them do like Margot Robbie would be dating a hypnotist. <laughs> Well, one of the scenes were in there, like, because I mentioned, like, you know, wouldn't you have that, you know, the word for your wife, like she's getting on your case, you just go sleep. <laughs> and then she doesn't even know it's coming and you drop sleep. And then yeah. my, oh, I don't know I can say this without giving too much away, but my wife comes up with quite funny things. Um, <laughs> she'll fucking kill me for this. <laughs> she comes up with some pretty funny things and... I said, or wouldn't it be good to have um, a word to get a blowjob? <laughs> yep, but and, wonderful. And and the word that she goes up, well, why don't you say candy cane? <laughs> so the rest of the night, candy that, cane, candy cane. <laughs> is that to scale or what's the? Yeah. The big candy cane. Okay. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Not the little candy canes, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> but the big candy canes, you know, and I, I, I was thinking you're right, right? What you're saying is right, but surely someone needs to give themselves up or want to be- believe or mm. want to be there, want to be in the moment to do it. That's I, And that's, I think that's possible. Yeah, I think so too. I agree with that. And everyone always says to me, like, 
after my show, they're like, oh, what you did is real, isn't it? Like, you can really predict the lottery. Give me the numbers. And I'm like, well, look, if I really could predict the lottery, would I be performing on 40-degree weather in a tent? And probably the answer is I'm guessing no. Um, so it, there's a, there is a trick to, I think, all these things. There is maybe an element of truth to some of it, but I still do feel there's limits. Yeah, I and I think when you've got social... Um, awareness or social um, cohesiveness where you want to, you know, you believe in something enough. Mm. I mean, I believe in UFOs, but I've got one sighting when I was young as a kid, which was just lights, but I can't, it was in York Peninsula, middle of nowhere. It's definitely not normal, but I've never seen anything since. Like, why fucking not? See, and I'm trying now, to believe. Now in this modern day era, why haven't they caught them on cameras properly? Good, good fucking. You know, it's one of these things. Like everyone's camera got a, is 108 megapixel. Everyone's got a smartphone now. So if there was UFOs and if they are being sighted so many, why is the footage always so hilariously bad? Yeah. Like, and I, I'm a massive skeptic, so I love to believe in all these things, but I don't know. Surely you've seen the footage of the Colin Favor. Oh that, man, I spend nights watching these things. So like, but that that footage and him talking. Uh, yeah, it's very, it's very convincing. Yeah, but there's a lot of things in life that are convincing as well. So I, I, I just like to question everything as well and go, well, then maybe then like, mm, I don't know. I have doubts over a lot of things. But I'd love for UFOs to be true. That'd be amazing. Yeah, because I'm sure there's someone, there's aliens out there. There is definitely extraterrestrial life somewhere. Are they flying about our skies in UFOs? Mm. Maybe they just get lost know. here or they're the real badasses. <laughs> Fuck, let's go see what they're doing, how they're destroying that, that fucking universe. Let's Maybe go have a, a look. Notice has has controlled them to do it. <laughs> and has you know. sent them. <laughs> <laughs> Galaxy far, far, far away. Oh, yeah, no, they're still there. All right, well, report back. <laughs> like, shit. Yeah, it is interesting, but, yeah, I think you have to give yourself up. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of the case with Hypno is, is my guess. But like, as but there's something like, there's something with the crowd that, and you would see it in your own crowds. Mm. Like you said, you had this guy in your your show. Did, did, was that live? He was saying, "I want more tricks." Oh, that was in a complaint. Yeah, uh, yeah complaint on a, on a Facebook ad. Oh, yeah, he okay. just said, no, okay. "Less talking, more tricks." <laughs> and I was like, well, "And what's I'm, his show called?" Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing it. Um, but, yeah, that's always the funniest thing. Oh, same. you might find it along with the UFO. <laughs> <laughs> like, God damn. It, but, look, I get people have – everyone has different wants and needs from a show, so I, I get that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just maybe didn't agree with everything that, that guy said. But um, oh, I forgot we were going with that. But with with um, things that come up in your shows, mm. so people – do you get you wouldn't get much heckling, I'm assuming. Like, I don't, like, I don't, I don't like saying this out in public because then people just go, oh, I'm going to heckle this guy then. But I don't think I've ever had a heckler. I, I think I had once during uh, when it was the old Clips or 500. Uh, oh, yeah. That weekend was always. Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. Because everyone's coming blind. I was one of those people. Yeah. Coming blind from the racetrack into the fringe. I thought I knew you from somewhere. Yeah. So, yeah, so that night you were really abusive <laughs> in my show. Um, really hurt. Uh, no, but it definitely used to happen. And I used to try to sell that weekend out as early as I possibly could. If it meant I was giving tickets away, that is fine. I would yeah. prefer that than people that have come from Clipsal to go and walk into a magic show, which is not somewhere they really wanted to be. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you used to get people that would talk or they'd yell. And, honestly, I just get rid of them. Uh, they, they get kicked out. It's not me that does it. The security does it. But 
It doesn't, not instantly. Like, you know, I, yeah. I don't mind a bit of a, yeah. a laugh back. I'm all for it. But for me, um, I've got this quite, I think it's a good line anyway because it pulls the heartstrings a little bit when someone's ruining a show. And I'll basically just sort of say, hey, like, I know for you this might, this show might not mean much. But I remember me, my first show, that is what inspired me to change my life and make me make myself happy and do what I wanted to do in my life. Overplay and violin just, music. And just imagine if in this show tonight there's a young child and this might be the only time this year they can go and see a show. I mean, this might be their very first show. So this show isn't about me. This show isn't about you. This show is about everyone here and potentially that one person in this crowd that right now you're ruining this for. So if you want to keep having a go at me, that is fine. But how about we wait till after the show? You can do it then. You can say whatever you want to say to me. I will take it. That is fine. But let's not ruin their night. Let's make it special for them. Now, if the person carries on after that point, they're just a dick <laughs> and the audience is completely against them. They're with me. So that is the best thing to do because I'm, the audience is on my side now. Like you can't not be, otherwise you hate that child. And <laughs> no one wants to hate the child. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, I think you wouldn't get that much from what I've seen with your shows. No, I mean, not very rarely happens. Online maybe afterwards when yeah. people, you know, old Joe Bloggs goes out and says, oh, you're rubbish. But like when you're performing for... <laughs> For me now, it's over 10,000 people every Adelaide Fringe. Um, there's going to be a few people that don't like the show and that's just the nature of the beast. So with the Adelaide Fringe, what do you think is your magic? <laughs> I can't believe that. What, what do you think is your, your – what do you think – why do you think you're so successful with your Adelaide Fringe shows? And do you use a lot of what you take out of that for your other shows? Uh, um, have you been around the world? Have you been? Yeah. yeah? yeah. So, what, so, so do you take fringe shows and then multiply that out? Have you been to Edinburgh Fringe? So or? I've only, only uh, been to Edinburgh <clears throat> to experience it and the plan was to go there last year and obviously everything happens uh, and we're still in discussion about when that might happen. Uh, so I've done almost every other city in Australia. I think I have done every city now. I've done some international stuff. I toured South Africa last year for a month. Um, so, yeah, you definitely take these elements and you're almost starting afresh every time you travel somewhere else, though. Yeah. I guess it's like any business. When you're expanding, it takes some growth. So for me, I didn't want to grow too big too quickly. I've seen that happen to too many businesses because this is, for me, I'm a business. So I wanted to start in Australia. I wanted to become the biggest magician in Australia before I became a magician anywhere else. So for me, Adelaide was my first thing and um, – you know, I don't want to sound too arrogant, but I'm now the easily the biggest selling magician in this city. Uh, and then I just did the same to Perth. I just started growing in Perth, yeah, and it was the same thing. Brisbane, probably the same thing. Um, Melbourne and Sydney, I'm a, I'm relatively sized, but um, it's a much bigger market. And who I, we got? We, we've got is it Costino or Constantino? Yeah, Cos. So Cos is probably so who he, I would say. He, we had the, him at a Drake conference. Yeah, he's probably the biggest magician I would say in Australia. You know what was cool about him? He, well, after, don't talk about him too much, mate, because I'm I am here. Don't forget. <laughs> he came and hung out with people after his show, and I don't reckon he had to do that. No, not well. I'm hanging out with you right now. <laughs> he's not here. Oh well, I'm just saying. <laughs> Remember was... you for the next show, actually. We, we <laughs> yeah, please. I'll send you a bill. No, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, yep. that's there's a uh, there's something to add to list. Yeah. Matt, Tarrant, uh, Drake. It's, it's always about the sale. It's always about the sale. <laughs> yep. But he, um, I mean, Cos is great, and he is, I would say, the biggest magician in the country overall. But I would be surprised if anyone sells as many tickets as I do. 
I, I'm, I believe I'm the highest selling magician in the country. That's we've got you as the highest ticket sales in the world. Mm. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, that's so Australia, yeah, Australia, yeah, Australia. Yeah. Australia. Okay, yeah, so maybe Australia. I don't know about the world, um, but it's, it's a huge effort. It, it, yeah, it is. And I look, I, I don't really know how to explain it. I think it's just um, a whole heap of different things. There's a bit of luck to it. There's been a lot of growth. I've been doing this for ten years now, so it's not like this is my first rodeo. I, I've learnt skills along the way. I, I think I've learnt how to do things right, and I've built an audience who. Uh, even if they don't necessarily love the show, they like me and they want to go support me. And I think that is an important thing that people have to remember, that you do have to be likable. And I've got a friend who's a really well-known, really good magician, and he says, would Copperfield ever want to be known as being a nice guy or a likable guy? And maybe not. But for me, that's what works. And yeah. that is something that I think is a skill set that works for me. And the fact that people do, I think, like me, they do want to support me. The fact that in Adelaide, especially I'm a local, that helps as well. But I think I've got a good ability to be able to pull those heartstrings still, no matter what city I go to. But you have to be genuine to be able to do that as well. I can't be making this up. Like I genuinely love magic. The cities I travel to, the people I meet, I genuinely love. And um, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. You know, there's not many people that get to do what I do for a, a living and a life, get paid the money that I get paid to do it, travel the places I get traveled, uh, I get to go to. Um, I'm very, very fortunate. And I also know tomorrow that could completely disappear. So um, I think the fact that I'm genuine about that, and I truly am, um, helps a little bit as well. So you can use the child joke. In any audience around the world? Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, works. Maybe, maybe. Um, I haven't tried it in all places, but definitely jokes work differently in different places. Well, how would you say, come and have a look at my deck in uh, New Zealand? I probably wouldn't. Um, but that, that, might go down. It might, might go, yeah, it might yeah. go down a little bit. But Have a look at my deck over here you and do, I'll show you some tricks. It's the funniest thing. Even <laughs> like different suburbs, it's different jokes. Like <laughs> we, we did like, a country town in SA and- I was under the assumption that they would be kind of more into the whole, you know, Ocker kind of Matt Tarrant. So I was more like, how's it fucking going? And they were not into it. They they wanted the magician magician. So, like, it was very weird. Whereas in Adelaide, they're kind of more used to me being kind of just, what's going on, guys? That um, it kind of worked. Country towns, it didn't work as much. You said it. You've been authentic. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's the most important thing. People can... People actually feel what that is for some. It's something about well, it. Well, you just have to be able to do it, and you have to be genuine about it. Like you can't teach that, and you have to actually do it. There's, there's no, there's no, you know, ifs or buts about it. That's just how you. If you want to become authentic, you just have to be authentic. And I think for me, I've been through so many things in my life, um, and I've done so many different things prior to magic that make me realize that I should be really grateful for what I'm doing now. Oh, and hard work too. Absolutely. Like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, so if you're talking about training and, and learning with card tricks, how long does it take for you to get a good card trick down? Like if Ollie wanted to do it, right, mm. how long would it really take him? And let's say he really is into it. He likes playing with his deck. Yeah. He's skilled at it. Yep. He's had a bit yep. of a little bit of experience, but not too yep. much. Not too much. Probably um, not much. Um how how long could it take him to learn 
the easiest of tricks. And I don't know what easy is. What, what to me, what can you tell us what you think are an easy trick to learn is? I'm not going to ask because you don't give away secrets, but what, what's, what would be something like? I like to do magic, which is easy. Yeah. I, I now, the thing I've learned about my magic is that there's no need to make it difficult. The more difficult you make it, um, it doesn't potentially improve the trick itself. The trick, the most important thing about the trick is how you present it. Yeah. Really. So you could do it the easiest method. There is a trick in my current show. I won't say which one, but it is <laughs> the easiest thing for me to do. It's not even sleight of hand. It is, it's, it's made out to be, but it's not. Yeah. It is, I could teach Ollie in half a second how to do it. Shit. All right. But constantly this year, people are saying, that trick, how are you doing it? My lighting guy who's watching the show every night is like, dude, that's the one I don't get. <laughs> and it is the easiest thing you could ever imagine. But it's how you present it. So it really depends. I found we've made tricks really complicated in the past. Yeah. Well, and well is that because of like the the high-end shows like – the Chris Angels, mm. the David Copperfields, the Constant, what Contento? Contento. Yeah, is that because they've got massive budgets and people see that on TV and go, oh, shit, we have to do that. I mean, there must be an element of that which just makes it go to a ridiculous level. Mm, I mean, there definitely is, but, like, we have a relatively high budget as well. I, I invest a lot of money into this show. So we, like, we're not, I mean, they've got a bigger budget, don't get me wrong, but we still have a relatively good budget. So we can do that, but I think the stripped back effect of my show kind of, it's its a different thing. It's a different experience, and I think that kind of works. I think it becomes more impossible when a guy in a T-shirt and jeans can do things that you've seen a guy in like a full production yep. show can do. Yeah. And that's something we realised pretty early on, that it doesn't really matter about all the bells and whistles. And we quite often will write a trick and we'll perform it the first time in a really complex way, like this trick I was talking about before. The original method the guy who created this trick came up with is hilariously complicated. There are moves and, and situations and sleight of hand that it, it's so full on. And when he taught me this and when I read his book, I was like, I just feel like I could do it this way and it's just as strong. So I'm just going to do that. Yeah. And I did and it doesn't change. Magicians love to be complex because they like to show off that they yeah. can do something. It, the audience doesn't matter. It's 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 all about how you present it and that end result is what's the most important thing. So I don't like to complicate things because the more you complicate it, the more chance it has of going wrong. The more it goes wrong, the worse shows you're going to do. So keep it simple. Keep it simple, stupid. Keep mate. it authentic. Exactly. And you've been doing that. Have have you changed tact before? Have, when you first started out, you, you know, I'm assuming, who, who were your big um, idols in regards to Magicians. David, magicians. David Blaine was probably the one. So David's this like amazing American magician who does a lot of stunt stuff as well. Um, he's very like low spoken, uh, very straight edge. Um, and he was someone that I was really aspired to be like. But then I realised I wasn't really that personality. Yeah, like, so that wasn't going to work. And that yeah. first show when I walked out on stage in dead silence, like one step at a time, slowly and stared at the audience. It didn't feel me, and I knew that's not who I can. Go, uh, that's, that's not who I should be. So the magicians that I would name and people that you would never have heard of, uh, Justin Flom was someone who was a big inspiration when I first begun. 
a guy called Justin Willman, who now has been on a show called Magic for Humans on Netflix, which is an amazing TV show. What's it called? Uh, Magic for Humans. But back when I first began, he, he was a relative nobody. Now he's got two seasons on Netflix. It's an incredible. Um, he was a massive inspiration and he, he still very much is. But people like Justin because he is just a nice dude. And he's made that style of magic work. He's now the host of um, Cupcake Wars. Um, so, oh, yeah. you know, he's yeah. like, he's now, he's not just a magician. He's a personality. He's a person. And that for me was something that I really kind of thought was quite cool. And that's what I wanted to do, wanted to do as well. Even from a young age? Um, I mean, I guess as a young age, I didn't really know. Like Rudy Kobe was someone I quite yeah. enjoyed, but I didn't necessarily go, I want to be that. Rudy was like kind of this mad scientist kind of magician and that wasn't ever going to be me. So I didn't really have someone as a young age that I necessarily wanted to be like. I just liked the idea of doing magic. Have you gone back in time to look at Houdini at all? Yeah, or? yeah. Uh, is there book? I mean, read any books? So I've, I've there, read his book. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of old, um, like some very dodgy footage, some recordings yeah. of his voice, and um, yeah, it's it's quite cool to watch that that stuff and to read his stories and to know a little bit more about him. It's always really interesting, I think. So you you obviously have taken it all on board mm. to learn a skill and craft that probably I don't think many people know. No, not really. really. Yeah, it's, yeah. Know, so it's, it's probably the, less at, than a professional golf player. Absolutely, at this level, yeah. There's not many professional magicians yeah. in this country. There's yeah. likely maybe one full-time professional magician in in Adelaide, or maybe two now with Vin. But yeah, even Vin, maybe, oh, he, maybe wouldn't consider himself a magician. Yeah, I, I don't, he almost he's a doesn't. Speaker. I don't think. No, yeah, he, he's a speaker that uses magic as a narrative. Yeah, and he talks about things like perspective, and it, you know, he, he did a great thing at our conference recently. He shows a some footage. And you're watching the trick go down. And then he, he then talks about it's all about the perspective. And then they show another camera angle and you see people changing stuff, fucking walking past, changing the top, like, you know, different jacket. And then it goes to another, like, another, it goes, it's got three different camera angles of the one trick, but it shows the three different times how it all depends on what perspective you've got. I would love to know if it's a still the same video because we filmed either that video or another version of that video back in 2011 together. And if oh, it probably, I bet you it is. If it is the same video. And they put a vase in there. Yeah. Uh, they change the colour of the deck. Yep. So that's me, Vin, and a guy called Shahin, who was our very first show called uh, Three. And that was the three of us doing that for a promo for a show. Yeah, that, that was. So Vin owes me a lot of money, is what I'm saying, <laughs> for all these gigs he's got off that video. Ah, Vin, you better better check that out. But uh, it did it does pose the question: Can you remember your first show? Yeah, yeah. It was um, my my first, like I guess showish <clears throat> was this variety show, and it was called um, Mr. Sinister's House of Strange. The <laughs> The second worst title of a fringe show outside of Blackheads I've ever heard. And it was this show at um, Light Square and it was by this producer and uh, I had a 15-minute set and I did um, a couple of routines. The first one was a routine which very much heavily involved the English language and the girl I brought up on stage didn't speak English, so that was good. Uh, she had no idea what was going on, and so so did you? Obviously, you obviously didn't know. I, no, I sent her back after a few minutes, but it was very uncomfortable for a good few minutes. Um, and this was all after. So I got to ask: if it was Margot Robbie, would have you just stuck with it? I know you would have. 
Um, I probably would have ended the show <gasps> and just. <laughs> I'm gonna, need, I'm, gonna need, I'm gonna need a moment. Um, <laughs> well, I, I hadn't met my wife then. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> me neither. Um, but no, for me, that that was my first show. But the funny thing about that show was two days prior. So this producer had set it all up, and two days prior, I went to do like the rehearsal, and I'm like, so who else is performing in this show? And he, oh, I don't really know yet. I might get a friend over from Melbourne to do it. And he had sold this show to be this grand spectacular variety show with all these A-list artists. And it was like 50 bucks a ticket, which back then in 2010, there was only Arj Barker that was higher than that. So this was meant to be an amazing show. And currently it was me for $50. <laughs> so it wasn't. <laughs> I don't even charge that now. <laughs> so it's like tricky. Um, so I was really angry. So he eventually put together this list of performers, all of them unknowns. And prior to me, there was this guy up on stage. Now, when I also worked out, how many, I asked him how many tickets he'd sold. He'd sold three, which turned out it was my mum, my dad and my brother. So I was performing a show for $50 um, to my family and that was it. So I went out that weekend and I busked and I just said, look, I don't want money, but if you want to come see a friend show this weekend, come and see Mr. Sinnott's House of Strange. Yeah. Ended up selling out the show. It was amazing. The guy before me was, I don't think he's a comedian anymore, but he said he was a comedian at the time. And he was quite a, a large man. And he went up on stage and he told some of the most racist, offensive and sexist jokes I've ever heard, but with no delivery. So it wasn't even like you could go, you could get away with it. It was just a guy up on stage being racist and offensive and it was awful. Kevin Bloody Wilson. He ended his routine. This is when he'd been, the producer had been trying to get him off by flashing a light and literally coming to the side of the stage and saying, mate, you've got to go off. He refused and he wanted to do his piece, the resistance, he called it. And it was his impression of an Italian grandmother, I think it was. And he took off his shirt and then for some reason decided to draw eyes on his nipples and then squeeze his belly together to form a mouth and just went, mamma mia, and then walked off stage. And then they're like, and ladies and gentlemen, now for Matt Tarrant. <laughs> so here's me, he's an 18-year-old kid about to do my first show, trying to follow up with that. Wow. It wasn't easy. Um, it wasn't easy. And I also had, at the time I was working at Westpac and I had the Westpac head of operations at that um, show because I'd asked them to come along. It was qu quite embarrassing. Um, so, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty rough first experience, that's for sure. And I, I don't think that guy's still performing. So you, you <laughs> carry, yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, did you do something with Arj Bhaka, did you? He, uh, he is crazy. Yeah, I've met Arj a couple of times, but yeah, I haven't actually done anything particularly with him. Yeah. One of his fringe shows, he had everyone like he was um, like a cult leader uh, I went to. <laughs> and he, he's pretty out there. Yeah. But it was good though. He's great. He's a great performer. Oh, great. So Fringe has been highly successful. Too. Have you? Has Fringe been something that you've been able to springboard yourself around Australia and even other places around the world? Any other country standouts that you've been to? Oh, South Africa was probably the one. And that, that was um, 2019, 2020, I think it was, where I went over there and I got invited because of the Adelaide Fringe. So the producer of this Cape Town Funny Festival, it's called, and it's the biggest comedy festival in, in the country over in South Africa. 
and he invited me over and said, look, we want you to do a 10 minute set. We'll pay you this every night. We'll fly you over. We'll put you up in accommodation and you will just experience South Africa. And it was honestly the greatest month of my life. Uh, 30, 36 shows, I think it was over 28 days. And in between shows we did safari. We traveled across, I, I, I um, paraglided off of Table Mountain. We had this VIP dinner at the top of, ta uh, of yeah. Table Mountain. It was just amazing. And we were treated like an absolute celebrity over there. Their burger shop over there, one of their big chains, they had a burger named after me. You could go and order the Matt Tarrant burger. It was awful, but you could have it if you wanted to. And it was just the craziest of experiences. Our faces were on this, um, their version of Coke. Um, I think it's called Jive. Uh, and our faces were on the bottle. And it just, an unbelievable experience. And just one of the greatest months of my life. But also, funnily enough, a month when I really struggled being away from home. Um, I really found it tough to be away from my wife and my family and friends and um was very lonely as well uh, because I was literally outside of performing and doing these cool things by myself yeah. um, in a country I didn't really know anyone in a hotel room, um, basically just getting ready for the next show. So it was a really daily shows, uh, or more than daily, sometimes, so yeah, sometimes two or three a day. Yeah, um, so it was quite regular, um, and yeah, it was a, a, an amazing experience. But also, I, I do remember that was a pretty tough time as well. And that's what and. How often do you get looked after like that? That's yeah. I mean, that's pretty uh, impressive. Yeah, pretty rare. They, 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 the guy that puts it together done up very well over there. Um, so yeah, that doesn't happen as much. There are definitely, the, I think, the bigger you get, the more you get those opportunities. You know, so when you first begin, you're always having to pay to do a show. Basically, even the fringe now, I'm paying a lot of money up front to do a show. When you can get a curated festival where they pay you to come. That's when you know you've you've done okay. Yeah. So the fact that I've got that quite a number of times now is um, it definitely makes it a lot less stressful. That's yeah. for sure because I know I'm getting some money at the end of it. Um, and yeah, but it does take a bit of time to get to that point. Um, one thing I learned about Fringe last week is that the majority of the money goes back to the performers. The yeah w yes. Oh shit! I thought it was. Oh hang on! I thought so, it was nowhere near. Like they take an admin fee. Obviously, they need to pay for. Set up and hire places and they do free advertising. Yeah. But so don't you get the rest? Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what you want to consider the rest though because <clears throat> as a performer, we have to pay up front for everything basically. Outside of the venue setting up, we pay for everything. We pay a registration fee. We pay for all of the marketing, all the show itself, um, and basically anything you need when it comes to like extra staff and whatever as well. Yeah. So to give you a good example of my show, um, I pay 35% of ticket sales goes to the venue themselves. The fringe also takes, I don't know, 5 to 10%, let's say. Um, so we're left with 55% to me. But from that, I've had to pay for everything. So I've had to pay for the entire show. So for mm. a ex good example, for tricks for me, I probably pay somewhere between 10 grand every year 10 15 for grand that sort per of stuff. Trick. Um, plus marketing, I invest about $50,000 in marketing for every fringe, um, plus then staffing, which is several other thousand dollars, plus accommodation, travel, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, you, you definitely, you're probably making 55% of ticket sales potentially, but you're also putting a lot of upfront as well. So you do probably end up with maybe 30-ish percent, something like that, maybe, as a, just a guide off the top of my head. Well, I would love that. It's, oh, it's brilliant. 
Don't get me wrong. Uh, in supermarkets, we work on very small digit. Abs- ab- absolutely, absolutely. But there's also, I think as a performer, there is a monstrous risk to that as well. Yeah. So for me to make a cent, we have to sell over 30% of tickets. Now- Is that, and with uh, the COVID- Yes. Because I noticed they were saying, oh, you can't sit next, like, you can't sit next to your partner. Yeah, you can't like, at all. 50% capacity, there's a seat next like, to every person. Yeah. Bit bizarre. I mean, it is. I live with her. Um, uh, to me, that's ridiculous. But I get it. You want an event or you don't. These are yeah. the things you got to do. And this is the thing. And that's because, why I'm kind of okay with it because of that. Yeah. Well, COVID keeps a seat away, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, honestly. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. But, couldn't help myself. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you been to a fringe show where you've been uncomfortable next to someone you don't want to sit next to, though, as well? All the so, time. <laughs> I mean, let's not complain, guys. I think it's pretty good. Uh, most guys, maybe some guys don't want to sit next to their partners. <laughs> <laughs> There's some conspiracy here, is <laughs> Maybe it? this is what it is. <laughs> Stephen Marshall was really keen to get a bit of space. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if so, okay, so so thirty percent. But you know, I, I've been told that other other fringe shows don't give that much back to the artist. Yeah, so Adelaide Adelaide Fringe, in as a general rule, is a, a far uh, more beneficial festival. I think particularly for local artists because we sell probably a high percentage, I think, as well. So, yeah, yeah it, the break-even point's better here. But it's still, I mean, I don't know the figures anymore, but uh, a while back when I sort of was first beginning, it is it was something like maybe 10 to 15% of artists will make money. The rest will break even or lose money. Okay. So it is, it is still, you know, it is a, a tough market because you do, if you don't have a, a, you know, a huge amount of shows, you don't have a huge amount of tickets to sell. Yeah, be stuff to get people there. So it, there's, there's this weird kind of level. So if you're doing really, really well, you're investing a lot of money into do really well. So you're obviously adding a lot more risk. And if you're very small, like the money you can potentially make is pittance comparatively to the months you're putting in to put that show together. Yeah. So for me, yeah, if you look at my figures and go, hey, that guy sells 10,000 tickets in a month at 25 bucks a ticket, let's say, you can work that figure out pretty quickly. Then you take away whatever the fees are and whatever yeah. the marketing is. You still got a good figure, but when you work out that is me working for months and months and investing all this money and then risking all of that, um, there is going to be a year if I were to continue doing this forever where that is going to fall apart yeah. and I will lose a monstrous amount of money. But I, I'm assuming this for you has been a, a stepping stone where you have picked up gigs because someone's seen Absol- you absolutely. at Fringe. Yeah. Do you think much of your external work has come from people looking you up online or people going to a fringe show and seeing your life? Oh, that's a good question. I don't – like it has to be a combination of both of those things. I can't really pinpoint the thing that has yeah. got me opportunities. There's there's a lot of different things that have got me opportunities and the fringe is a very big aspect of that. The fringe has got me more festival work, and more festival work gets you more um, your shows on to more eyes. So, um, I've done a lot of TV stuff, I've done a lot of radio stuff, um, and that has got me things as well. I don't think there's one thing which has got me everything. I, I agree. It's never one, yeah. and we say we say that in supermarkets because we argue oh, how many people look at the catalogue, and the only people doing catalogue surveys are the people making the catalogues. Mm. So, and when you're doing a survey on a catalogue, maybe. Maybe you've been hypnotised to, to, oh, shit, I better look at a catalogue. Like there's all these things and we we say exactly the same thing. It's never one thing. And I think 
life is never about one thing. Mm-hmm. It's always a, a multitude of them. Absolutely. I've, I've looked at some of the content that you put out. You've got a YouTube channel. You're pretty much everywhere. But I notice you you do production. You do your own editing from what I can see, uh, uh, unless it's someone else. That's but all, you can tell it's very classy editing. Must take time. Yep. One of the fastest editors I've seen is this kid over here. Like it's in time. Like what I do in 10 hours, you're probably doing an hour maybe. But to, then you, you sort of stopped on YouTube. Um, you are on LinkedIn. You do do a bit on Facebook, but predominantly photos. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular reason why you went, ah, fuck this? Like, it, And YouTube's, a, I reckon it's quite a demoralising platform because it's extremely hard, yeah. but you've got amazing content. Like, yeah. And I, weigh, I got a mate that produces amazing content, but he just doesn't get views. Mm-hmm. It's not good if you want to do that for a living. Mm. We just do it for fun. It's, yeah. We don't do it for a living. So. Why, why, why was there a break or am I just reading into this? No, you're not. I think, I think you almost bang on off what you just said though, that I feel like with a lot of these platforms, in particular YouTube, the amount of time and effort you invest into something doesn't necessarily equate to getting something back. Yeah, totally. So you see the, some of the best YouTubers I know are guys that have a couple of thousand subscribers, but some of the most incredible things you've ever seen that doesn't necessarily equate to getting a following. And there is a lot of luck when it comes to online. Don't get me wrong. There is a process you can take that does potentially increase your chances of it going well. But for me, um, there was when I'm doing all these other things, for me, that was probably the opportunity that was one of the lesser opportunities for me to succeed. Yeah. Okay. So it's something that, you know, for me to do well at YouTube, for me to do well at Instagram or whatever, I'd have to invest and make it become a full-time thing. And um, I wasn't in a position to be able to do that. I was going to say you, you need a certain amount of money to be able to Absolutely. go, I'm going to go full-time into YouTube. You can't do all these things at once as well. I, I can't become Australia's best magician as well as becoming the world's best magician as well as becoming the most popular YouTube magician. I, I had to pick something. Yeah. So for me, festivals were where I had the biggest brand, so I had to kind of focus on that. Um I'm now at a point where I don't know if I want to be doing festivals for much longer. Yep. I keep saying this every year, but I'm pretty confident this is my last Adelaide Fringe for a little while. Oh, my, come I think on. My 2019. Honestly, man, I think 2020, my- 2021. I think this is the first time I've put that out into the open a bit more. In the past, on my like private Facebook, this is probably the last time, guys, but this time my show has elements of it. You know, I've got at the start of it, I've got almost a, a slideshow of the last 10 years with people that have been at my show to say thanks. I talk about mental health in my show and how hard it is to do this industry sometimes. And I end with a piece of magic, which is unlike anything I've done before because it's not really a trick. It's my story. And right now I kind of feel that's a good place to end it for a bit. Um, if that happens or not, I don't know, but I just, I feel like it might. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, really happy with what I've done in, in my career in this and for now I kind of maybe think I want to take a step back for a second and just sort of reevaluate that. Uh, I but mean, in saying that. It's re- only a step back in fringe. Yeah, abso- abs- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like, so this is this is the first time we've now I've now got a person working with me one day a week to film content and to do what we've sort of spoken about and to get that stuff going because I enjoy it and I'm now at a point where um, I don't really like thinking about financials, but I've made enough in the festival work to be able to kind of just do f- YouTube without worrying about bringing in monetization dollars. Yeah. Uh, 
don't really need it. And that's the that's the hard part. It's the monetization part. Yeah, and it's, if you're doing that for a career, you it's going to be some burn. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think for me, money's never necessarily been the driver of things for me as well. But I need to be in a position to be able to make sure I can say that. It's very easy to say that um, if you've got money. Yeah, um, it's a lot harder to say that when you're struggling for dollars as well. And I, you know, it's hard for me to get in that position. So now that I'm kind of okay, I'm living a a very middle income kind of life, but that's good for me. I can probably put a bit of time into YouTube and pay someone to help me to put that together. So and, How, and do it for fun. Will you do it for fun? That's exactly that. That's the hard part. I've, we edit all sorts of different stuff. Ollie probably wants to edit more extreme stuff. Um, he calls himself the meme meme lord. Oh, I love memes so much. Really. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we yet to see one, but what he does produce. <laughs> so we had um, we had Amber. She's a gamer, and she was the meme queen. And we've seen some of her memes, but with Ollie here, he he produces content for us, and I would say some of the Drake stuff we put a bit edgy, like compared to anyone else in retail. No one else is no one else is doing fun stuff. I think there was a YouTube video of you going around last year, wasn't yep, there? Yeah, there's was... a yep. So that's all from stuff that we we put it on the edge a bit, but I know what he wants to do. So we do other things like JP rates stuff, which is we rate whatever. I'll rate this edition Magic for Humans. But Ollie's like, you know, we keep giving different stuff to just so he can improve of his skills. That's what I think. He probably mm. doesn't think so. But always coming up with different things to do. And, you know, that we did a review on the Game Boy versus Nintendo Switch. I reckon it's awesome. But, you know, he sits there and goes, oh, fuck, it doesn't get many views. And I said, mate, it's, it's not about the views. But in his eyes, I can see how he's produced a great piece of content. Mm. We've got a platform where people watch product and, uh, you know, we talked about maybe they get a bit confused. They come to see us on retail and then we're doing a review on Nintendo Switch versus Game Boy. So I can see how it's very disheartening for most people and the stats on YouTube people is most people don't go past a year and what they forget is that you need to produce about 200 pieces of content mm. during that year. Mm. I, I mean perfectly every day or every week but mm. depends on your, your content but... Yeah, I, I see how it's a problem and that's why I, I did notice it with your content because the magic tricks must be quite hard to film. To, cause I, yeah, it's I, not something you can just put together every day, I don't think. Yeah, It'd and, be really tricky to do that. And I watched the um, uh, Chris, is it Chris, what's his name? That angel guy. Chris Angel, yeah. Yeah, and to me it's way too edited. I can't get into it. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming what he does is great but... I I look I just gloss over it and I, I don't want to see that. To, that's just me. But I can see oh yeah, obviously yeah, it's millions of people that do want to see it. It's it's too edited. Like when mm. I I can show you look it's a Game Boy then edit oh I turned it into a Nintendo Switch like oh, I could he could edit that and you wouldn't even know. Yeah. Fuck oh my god look at the technology change there. But it's too far fetched for me. I, is that is that me looking into this? No, or? it is absolutely people want to see magic when it's a bit more real, I think, um, and, and believable and not edited, not camera tricks, not that sort of thing. And I think I also am well aware that when it comes to magicians, if we're talking from a, a, a sleight of hand skill level or a talent level when it comes to the trick, I am not at the highest level. There's far, far better sleight of hand magicians in the world than I am. So if I were to ever try to become a YouTuber, 
that is likely not going to be the path I would take. I would have to find what my biggest strength is to become that person known for that. Well, it's you. It's me. Uh, and that's and what it, that is. Yeah. And, and that's hard to get across straight away. That's much harder to get across straight away than a lot of other things. So that's something that doesn't necessarily jump out to a lot of people instantly. It takes time. So for us to do that, it, it's going to take time. Maybe we could deep fake you mm. with me doing the trick, mm -hmm. Ollie. Is that for your benefit or my benefit? Yeah, the way uh, yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, shit, my face on you ain't going to help you, mate. <laughs> yeah, I, want, I wanted subscribers, I think, is the aim, wasn't it? Unless it's, <laughs> unless it's meeting Margot Robbie, you're not getting... <laughs> You're not getting that. I don't think it's going to help you at all. I, I feel like you've mentioned Margot Robbie's name more in this interview than you would have if you had an interview with Margot Robbie. It's, she's come up quite a lot. Well, do we need to talk about this? Normally we talk about Red Bull. Okay. Because we've found that Red Bull is looking for some business ambassadors. Okay. And uh, we think we're the right people for it. Okay. So I've, I've made a thing to myself not to say Red Bull. Yep. Too, too many times because we're trying to keep the amount of times we use the word Red Bull down. So three times in the last 10 seconds is yeah, maybe a bit too so much. We don't want Red Bull to think we're trying to you know, talk about Red Bull all yeah, the time. So, so we won't talk about Red Bull too much in, the, yeah. in this. But what about Monster Energy, energy Drinks? They're quite good as well, well aren't they? Or Mother? Or well, I mean, whichever one's first. <laughs> um, <laughs> just saying... Uh, Red Bull a bit pickier. I reckon Monster would come on board. They'd, they'd see the need for, you know, I rock up to board meetings and I they have Red Bull on the table for me. This you, is not a coincidence. push them away and say, mother, no, not mother please. Mother bitch. <laughs> <laughs> or bang, energy drink. <laughs> I could see you being a bang ambassador. That is almost... Mwah. Bang! Fucking energy. Yeah. It is. And that is. Anyone that doesn't know Bang, you need to check it out. That's it, the sort it, of content you should be doing. Yeah, he loves it. Bang! Before I wake up. Bang! When I collect the trolleys. <laughs> bang! When I'm serving meat. Oh, we've talked about it. Don't worry. <laughs> so, I'm, on, I'm on board. So, see? I'd follow that content. I'm not going to follow it if it's not that. Yeah, okay, I got um, it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Um, one of the other things you love is. Port Powell. Oh, mate. I'm assuming you're a Port Adelaide supporter as well. I'm an ambassador of the club, yeah. Yeah, but, but for Port Adelaide, did you start with Port Maggie's. You know what? No, I was a Glenelg boy. Because okay. I grew up in Glenelg. Peter so Carey time. Oh, oh mate. Oh. Nick Chigwigan was the one that gave me my year seven graduation certificate. Um, I had no idea who he was, but he was one that gave it to me. <laughs> and so I, because I, I went to I wonder Glenelg, what he's doing now. I, I think he. In jail. Is he? No, I don't know. <laughs> So being an ambassador, mm. like, you know, we've just mentioned Red Bull. Travis Boak and, and Red Bull, yeah. Yeah. There was a while there was a rumour that Red Bull was going to become a big port sponsor as well. No was, way. They there will was not. a massive. Nah, nah, no, I know, but we, well, I might have been one of the person that helped to spread that rumour on, on a footy-based forum. Uh, I know Red Bull well enough that, nah. They like they're owning for business. They, they like owning everything. Okay, yes. Yeah, they do like the takeover. So it would become the Red Bull Port Adelaide or something like yeah. that, like it is over in um, uh, Europe. Uh, there's a soccer yeah, team. Soccer team like, yeah, soccer team, Leipzig, whatever it's called. Oh, um, imagine how much Red Bull they drink. Oh, probably none. Yeah, absolutely none. No, heaps. Though it is a so wonderful, if they are listening, it's, it's yes, a wonderful it's, beverage. It's amazing. One of amazing. my favourite energy the... drinks, unless another one comes on board. But, yeah, it's uh, there was a rumour for that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I love Port, mate. It's um, So how did you get into it? Are you into football? 
I'm not very good at playing it. No. But I love watching it. Yep. Uh, and growing up, I used to play footy on you know, Glenelg Primary Oval, uh, which was a Glenelg footy oval. So yep. we used to play on the actual oval. It looks cool now. Yeah, it does. They've done a great job. Yep. So I was a, a Bays man and because of Matthew Richardson, I was a Richmond fan and the Tiger connection, I guess. And then my year five teacher, Mr. Price, his name was, he wow. um, he was a massive Was he always right? You can put that one in your show. Mm. <laughs> no, he was a massive, he was a massive Port fan, and I was abs- like, he had this competition when because Port were just coming in. It was ninety ninety six, and he had this competition where the first kid in his class that could learn the Port Adelaide theme song and sing the song would win a can of Coke. And my mum was very much against soft drink, and I was a bit of a chubby kid, and I really wanted that can of Coke. So I learned that song that night, went home, sang it, and won that can of Coke. And that was honestly the reason why I became a Port fan. It's, wow. it's, it kicked it off. And so it's the same era as two or beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, onion, and pickle. Yeah, abs- absolutely yeah. was. Absolutely was. So, uh, okay. So you obviously follow your like of uh, going back and doing a bit of research. I notice you're you know you're singing their their whatever their song is. Never tear us apart. apart. You have gone deep. (laughs) Right, and you've got a 360 view of it. Oh, my. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so. Do I need to call the police? What is happening? No, 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 don't worry. It's all out on the internet. (laughs) Um, uh, So I I looked at that and I thought, wow, you're right into this. I did only have one question. Do you have tattoo and you don't, but you're thinking about it. I'd love to, but my wife would divorce me. So, So when you look at something that you want to be proud of, what? What is it that you can provide the the club, and how how do you get to a stage of, I I, I love this club enough that oh, wherever I talk about this club, I'm going to be able to back it and talk about it, and you want to give something back. Mm. What are you giving back to Port Power? That's a really good question, and, and I think for me and for the club, we've had a really good strong relationship in that we um, we both give each other a little bit. You know, so when it comes to festivals and stuff, they always promote my show. Yep. When it comes to things like emceeing events or performing at an event, I will happily do as much as I can. But I'm genuine about my love of the club as well. It's not, you know, they're not having to give me a ticket to go to a show, to go to a game. So they offer me memberships every year and I have not taken it once because I want to pay for my membership. I was in the Oval, you know, when we were playing at Amy Stadium in front of 10,000 people the worst days of the tarps, all of that, and I was there at every single game. Even as as poorly as we played, I was always there. I love the club truly from within. And I think for them, my guess is they wanted people who were genuine and were actually supporters that maybe had some form of name. So there were the likes of, you know, myself, um, Hugh Sheridan was a good example of people that came on to the club as ambassadors at that time that genuinely loved the club. We didn't need anything to become a, a spokesperson of the club. We would just do it because we love the club. The fact that they invite us to events every now and then yeah. is just a nice bonus for everyone. Um, but, yeah, I, I think for me as a club, I just offer the fact that there is a someone that, I don't know, has some sort of voice in the community. Yeah. When it comes to my things like fringe posters, every year apart from this year, it's always been port colours. I always offer them memberships and like them, them discounts for shows. I do shows them for free or yeah. for a very reduced rate. And it's because I love the club. I'm happy to do that. So I guess that's kind of it. So did you have to ask for this? No, they came to me. Okay. Uh, and it was... 
Well done, Port. That's 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 someone actually knowing what they're doing. I'm trying to think when it was, but it was quite a while ago. It was well before I was uh, like a, a, a big successful friend show. It was before any of the reality TV stuff. It was well before that. Um, and, yeah, I think it just was because I had connections at the club that, you know, I was friends with and they realised that there were people there that maybe at the time were like micro-influencers but yeah. they wanted to jump on board and they were probably, you know, my guess is one of the first few that actually really do that. Yeah, it's it's so good. At least they can identify it. Yeah. And, you know, if – other people came to me. It's, I'm certain products I'm passionate about, but if I'm not passionate about it, I couldn't do it. Absolutely not. And I'm I, uh, I hate influencers. It's not my thing. Uh, like I just can't get into it. And I get offered, you know, things because I have some. It's a micro following, but a following at least online for some platforms. And I'll get offered things. Oh, it's over and ten thousand people. Yeah, like that, but, but I just have no interest in most of the things. Yeah, but my, you, my, yeah, okay. Unless it's Port the, Adelaide, sorry, video that's games, maybe beer, um, mushrooms. We were talking about this before. What is this drink? It looks life cycle. No. Um, JP10 code. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's like mushroom extract. Mm. Like not psilocybin. Like their lion's mane and cordyceps and this is this one here's turkey tar. See, I'm sure it's wonderful, but I just wouldn't promote that because it's not really it doesn't fit me. It doesn't fit Correct. The that and that's me. why I get told, well, how can you support Red Bull? And natural, like full this full natural extract mm. from a mushroom. It's like mm. easily because I'm passionate about both. I like the both. You can My, like, you can like some people things. don't find passion in anything in yeah. life. So talking about passion, you somehow ended up on the set of Survivor. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Now, you had an audition tape there too. So you obviously put a bit of thought into I, it. I, I auditioned like everyone else. Yeah, so I, I, know I wasn't. <laughs> I a, lot, know a, lot, a lot of people are, are recruited, like they get picked. I, I went through the full process like everyone else. What were you thinking? Um, I just wanted to do it. Like when I was a kid, I grew up watching it and I loved it. Um, and I always kind of said to my brother, one day we'll be on The Amazing Race or one day I'll be on Survivor. Um, we applied for the Amazing Race when we were younger and we were close to getting on, but they changed the age restrictions. So we ended up getting disqualified because my brother was too young. Then Survivor came out and I was like, well, I mean, what the hell? Might as well give it a go. I bunged up an application together on the second to last day. I filmed a video in one take in yeah. three minutes. It's Sorry. literally just me talking to the camera. Yeah. And I thought, look, if they're going to like me, they're going to like me. If they don't like me, that's fine. I'm not going to try to get on through my editing or through – anything else fancy I'm just going to be me if they like it they like it if they don't they don't a couple of days later got the phone call had the Skype ended up going through auditions and then got the job or got the part I guess and so you made it to the last what were final you final five, five? Yeah, yeah so 51 days I was on the show for it at 55 what's it like the best thing I've ever done and the worst thing I've ever done so best when you left uh, no best when I was there you know what? Best, like, despite the fact I lost 15 kilos. Oh, fuck. That's a good way to lose weight. I absolutely came back with depression and anxiety. Oh, God. Um, I almost lost my marriage. Um, I probably lost friends and we definitely had situations there. Um, I came back obsessed with what people thought of me uh, and the online world and what people were saying about me in the show. Um Holy shit! I didn't. I didn't pick up any of this. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, so this was all after. So how long ago? How long ago did you? 
was did did you finish? Two thousand sixteen is when it was filmed, and then it started to air. So it was filmed at the sort of sort of towards the start, middle of two thousand sixteen, <clears> and started to air. I think it started to air at the end of two thousand sixteen. Yeah, so um, I might have my years mixed up a little bit there, but ar- around that kind of time. But it was about a six month break between end of filming and show starting. So it's no coincidence when you stop producing content. I mean, it was it, yeah, kind it's of the reason, that reason. Yeah, it. So, you, so what when you're there? I'm assuming there's directors and there's people orchestrating, not the whole thing, but, you know, saying, hey, guys, you've got to do this next and no? Or is it really free-flowing? In general, I would say it's free-flowing. Obviously, there are things you have to do. You have to go to challenges. You have to do certain tasks and things. But there's absolutely no control of the narrative of the story when you're out there. They definitely like any good TV show should, they like to get every angle. So they will talk to you about every point. And that is, I think, uh, because one, they want to make sure they cover every aspect just in case. And two, they, I guess, want that opportunity. If they do want to edit it in a certain way, they kind of have a bit more of ability to be able to do that. So I guess a a good example, they could say, hey, tell me about your alliance with with, with JP. Okay. And then tell me about, you know, what if that's not true? Uh, like so, you kind of tell every sort of story and every single side of the story, so you can kind of they can explain that narrative. They do want to know everything that's going on in your head as well. So the interviews you have out there are long, like we're talking hours. And um, so you do obviously, and they'll really cut, they'll cut that down to like five seconds. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot there, but they also can't edit you to say something really you didn't say. Um, Maybe, well, at least they didn't back then. They, do, suge- they do a little bit now. I was going to say, there's a bit of suggestion. They do what's called Frankenbites now, which is like where they will cut together and you can honestly tell because it's generally quite poorly edited. But not everyone can. You're saying you can, but I don't uh, think that. If you were to watch it and you would understand what it looks like, you probably could. It's yeah. the audio. You hear it cut out a little bit earlier or later. Yeah, no, it and goes also, off top. if you watch a person talking and if they're in one outfit or at one position and then by the end of the sentence they're somewhere else, um, yeah. I mean, it probably wasn't from the same sentence. But um, you also have to be a little bit unaware of that and aware of what you're saying. Um, But for me, I don't know, I was kind of open for the experience as much as I could and I wanted to give the producers a good show. So I was happy to kind of open up myself a little bit. Um, But, yeah, there were definitely moments that I dreaded that I remembered out there and going, are they going to show that? How are they going to show that? What's that going to look like? I was fortunate on the show that they, I think the editors and producers as a general liked me, so I didn't get a poor edit. Definitely things that maybe weren't exactly how I remember them to be at least um, and maybe didn't paint me in the best light, but um, I think overall my character out there was generally positive. It wasn't at least negative. It was kind of somewhere in the middle, I reckon. Were you, obviously you're aware of that. Yeah. So did you have to tone down your... Did you have to tone down what you were saying because you were cautious about how that could come across on TV or you'd, after a while you're like, oh, I, it's just too much? It's hard because like I, 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 try, I tried not to be because I knew I was there to make TV and that's kind of what I wanted to go in with. My wife was really worried. My wife was really worried that um, I'd built some sort of career here doing fringe shows and also doing corporate shows that no one's ever going to want to book the arsehole magician from Survivor. So there was always that in the back of my head, like, you know, um, and worried that, you know, what I could say, what I could do out there. There are definitely elements when you're out there and you do forget that you're being filmed and you forget that things you might say could be misconstrued. 
um, I was fortunate the people out there were like we were all kind of looking after each other. So there were definitely narratives that were trying to tell um, that we were kind of all aware of and we tried to steer clear from that. So a good example, there was two people out there that were very flirty and they shouldn't have been because one of them had a partner on the way back. And it probably wasn't past the level it, you know, was okay, but you could definitely tell they were trying to gun for that story and yeah. it would have looked a lot worse than what it probably was. Yeah. Um, so as a cast, we kind of just did our very best to stay clear from that story. And there are definitely moments like we were laying down on beds and, you know, I was like, girls, come on in. Like, and then one of my mates, Nick, was like, dude, just be careful because you just, who knows how they're going to present that. And it was spot on. Like they could have made me this weird, creepy magician if they really wanted to. So I, there were definitely times where I was a little bit aware of it. But um, for the most part, I was just trying to be me. And I think for most of it, they painted me pretty much as I am. So does that go against everything that, you you want to be is authentic, open, honest, like all of these things you've been leading up mm. to you on your show and you're you're sitting there with a lot, oh, you've been a lot more cautious in how you're presenting because it depends on the edit comes out. Yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe, but I did also have those moments. I allowed myself to be authentic out there. Yeah. So a really good example of that, I guess, was that from probably the second half of the season I was adamant that I was in an alliance with some people out there. And I was certain that was the case. And it, genuinely out there, I was pretty confident that was the case. I definitely had my doubts, but I was pretty confident. I was bang on. And it, I was wrong. I, it was, I was being, um, yeah, I, I wasn't. I wasn't in this alliance at all. I was on the outside. And I had a massive breakdown out there, massive mental breakdown, because I knew... I'd gone into this show and they'd wanted me to be this mind reader who could read body yeah. language and I'd um, that's what I played and I was wrong and I was like, okay, they're going to paint me to be the dodo. I'm going to get the dodo at it now and um, I had a massive breakdown. I was in tears. I was crying to the producer and I'm like, you're going to end my career um, and they got all that on camera um, and I knew that if they wanted to show that they could have. And, um, and they didn't? No, they were pretty good. I mean, I was the dodo for a little bit um, but they were pretty good. They, they, they were generally really good to me, I think. And they, there's obviously an element where it's a TV production and they are taking advantage of that and they probably yeah. are not my friends. But um, for a lot of it, they did protect most of me, I think. Well, that's, uh, do you think they'd do that now? Um, I don't think they had any reason to ruin my career. Yeah, no, so uh, yeah, not intentionally. In some it. situations, they probably wouldn't care, <clears throat> but in that situation, I don't think it would have made better TV. Um, they got what they needed out of that situation, but they didn't need it in my career because of it. Um, but maybe some situations they would be okay to do that. I mean, there's definitely like The Bachelor. They've had people that have had their careers ended because of it. Um, but it is when you sign up to a reality TV show, you're well aware of this. You can't go onto these shows now and go, I can't believe they edited me that way. They are like demons. Yeah. We are all aware that's what they do on these shows. So that's just something you sign up to, I think. So when did you, you, you said this happened on the show, did you come back home and go, like, did things change for your mental mm -hmm. health? Mm -hmm. Or was it when you were, where were you? Were you on a, Samoa. Samoa. So Samoa, were yeah. you out there and things changed? Or was it when you got back that you started to read the comments and you're like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. um, I didn't think about the aftermath when I was out there. Um, that didn't really happen. Probably the only thing I was worried about, I didn't have my shirt off. 
um, <laughs> because I'm a white chubby magician and I didn't want to be that. <laughs> well, you had Port Power. Yeah, but that was, they didn't like that and they um, they didn't know it was Port stuff because I wore on purpose a PA jumper but didn't really look Port Adelaide. It only had the logo on the back in dark on dark and then I wore a Port jersey but it was, it just said Port and it didn't really, it was a basketball jersey so it didn't really look like an AFL one either and, yeah, they weren't aware that it was AFL because they're all from Sydney. And um, it wasn't until I got voted off when the producer was like, Matt, you and your port stuff, you weren't meant to wear logos or like official stuff, but you wore those outfits at every key event of the show. We can't edit it out because I wore them at every challenge, every tribal council, every moment because I knew they weren't going to be able to cut that out. <laughs> so the club was stoked. Um, but, yeah, but um, uh, I don't know what the, I can't remember what the original question was, but... Um, Did, was it, you know, were you away when, when when you noticed that, hang on, this is affecting me mentally, mm. were you away, obviously you got plenty of time, you got more time on that island to think about stuff than you would back home, I'm yeah, assuming. Absolutely. Yeah. So then you come back and you said, you know, there was strain on your friends, your wife, like, why is that? I think because you go through an experience that no one else can really understand unless they go through it. And it probably feels, I don't want to uh, diminish, uh, you know, war veterans and their PTSD, but it did feel what I can imagine a version of that is like, where I've gone through an experience where for 51 days I was starved, I was produced, I was directed in a way, I was manipulated by people both in the show and behind the scenes of the show. Um, they now have complete control of my narrative, really, if they wanted to. Um, and then people are going to watch me doing things that I did out there. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that realisation happened at times throughout being on the experience, but then I think it really hit when I came home. Um, and my wife, obviously, she didn't go through the experience. She wasn't out there. Um, and she, I mean, she was very supportive of me doing what I want to do, but I think if I were to say, do you want me to go out there, her answer would be no. Yeah. Um, so I probably made that selfish decision to do that. Um, so that made that like different as well because it was hard for her to be without me for 68 days it was without any contact. I mean, that's really tricky. We got engaged two days before I went out there because I thought that was a really smart idea. <laughs> Um, probably wasn't. Uh, not that the engagement obviously was, but doing it that close by was um, not ideal, I would have thought. Um, so that was tricky as well. And she kept getting asked that question, where's Matt? What's he doing? And she had to lie to all her friends and family about it until I got announced. Um, and then I think she got played by the producers as well. And because she didn't sign up to that, that was really hard. So she had to write a letter to me, you know, to uh, if, if I won this award, I'd get this letter. And she sent one back and they said, it's not sad enough, make him cry. So she had to write a new one. And then she was meant to fly out to see me because I got so far. So at final four, they sent the families out to see the person. So my mum and my uh, wife and my brother, I think, um, had to get their immunizations, get their passports, visas already, send photos of what they're going to wear, book time off, get someone to look after the pets. And then um, she was meant to fly out on the Monday morning. And then by Sunday night, she hadn't been told her flight details and she had been trying to get in touch with the producers all day. She finally did it about 10 o'clock that night and she said, oh, don't worry about it. We're not doing it anymore. It's all good. But the producers Yeah. Are. So my wife said, okay, well, obviously he's been voted off. Is he okay? 
oh, we can't say anything, um, but we're just not doing family visits. And she's like, I've watched the show. I know what's happening. This is he okay? And um, they said, we can't tell you. He will speak to you soon. And that was it. So you can see um, she wrote a diary when I was out there and just the her headspace going through that was really tough. And, uh, you know, I think me realising that I caused that was really tough as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was tricky. And then, you know, people, like, when they're watching her back, they have opinions and, you know, they brought her into the opinions as well. She got an email from some guy saying that she was an idiot for, you know, being married to a guy who got played by these three women and she should get rid of me and dump me and all these things. And um, she didn't sign up to it. I did. Um, but other people get dragged into that, I think, and that was really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Is there something now that when you, knowing what you'd experienced then mm -hmm. in 2016, 2017, knowing what it was like then, what would you do different now? Uh, being honest, probably nothing. Yeah. Probably do it again. Um, you would do it again? If, if I was a Survivor Series uh, challenges. Like if uh, I was in the right headspace and we were both in the right headspace, yeah, I yeah. think I probably would if I'm being honest. I, I, I definitely feel like I'd um, be more aware of the situation though and aware of her situation, which we didn't know. I mean, it, this was the first time they did Australian Survivor. So there was no one we could talk to to understand what they were going through. So when it came to the second and third seasons and whatever, we did our best to try to speak to these people that we knew before the show was on had gone out there and speak to their partners and make sure they were okay. And I think, you know, Kira uh, was really good at doing that too. She spoke to a lot of uh, couples, um, you know, to understand that they were going through rough stuff as well and it was tough. Um, so, yeah, maybe. Like, I don't, I don't know though. It's always a, it's a, it's a weird thing because you always, I think, forget about how bad some of the things were. You just remember the good. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and the human mind's very good at doing that. And I think that that would be a kind of thing that we'd have to really talk about and go through and I'd probably have to give her that decision but I would probably know I'd, the decision I would like her to make. <laughs> yeah, say no more. Um, what was the worst thing that happened out there to you or to someone else? Because, you, you know, they want action on the show, like, you know, major injuries, what the food, like you lost 15 kilos. Yeah, I lost 15 kilos, so a couple of injuries. Um, I mean, there was nothing... Nothing dramatic. Nothing too dramatic that I can think of, you know. I definitely feel the coming back for most people is the hardest thing. Yeah. And there are people that have gone out there and everyone that goes out there goes, well, that wouldn't happen to me. Like my relationship, my whatever at home is much stronger than that. Yeah. You don't really know though until you do these weird things, you'd realise how tough it is. You know, there are people that went out there as very happily married and came back probably due to survive a very broken and those relationships are now broken off. Um, I know a lot of people from my season and seasons after have had uh, divorces, they've had jobs break down, they've had these experiences which would likely be partly due to Survivor. Um, they might not want to admit that, but it probably was. Because yeah. um, it, it, it is it is really hard. So the things I think you see which are the toughest are the things you don't really see on the TV show. And they probably make really bad TV. But um, <laughs> real life they are, yeah, quite dramatic. Yeah. I did that. Does the show offer counselling? Yeah, so better now, I believe. Back when I was on, um, they offered it. It probably wasn't 
what I expected it was going to be like, but um, they they did have a system there at least for people that wanted to kind of reach out to it. Yeah. So what's a lesson that you've learned from Survivor? I don't know. That's a that's a good question, and I don't know if I did learn any lessons from Survivor, but I didn't do Survivor to learn lessons. <laughs> I, I, I honestly did Survivor just to have fun, man. Like I did it because I wanted to challenge myself and do something stupid that no matter how much money I have, I'd never be able to pay for that experience. No matter how much money or what you have in your life, you can't pay to be on Survivor. It's not how it works. And I know I'm one of the fortunate few, one of less than 100 people in Australia that have had that opportunity and um, that's that's pretty cool. It's a kid that I, it's a story that I could tell my grandkids or um, you know people for the rest of my life. It's a really cool thing. I can watch that back and go, that was pretty cool that I did that. Did you watch it back? Yeah, only once. I haven't watched it again. So you watched from the start yep. your season. Yeah, haven't haven't watched it. Do you get again to watch since. that before it goes to air? No, no. So you watch it with everyone else. Yeah, there was a scene that I remember exactly what happened in my head. And what was edited was not that <laughs> because it was this bit where I was looking for an idol and what what had happened prior, previously, we'd been told we had to move camp because it wasn't good for TV where we were. So we moved. But I was confident that wasn't really the exact reason and I thought maybe it's because there was an idol nearby and they wanted it to be kept secret for a bit. What's an idol? Uh, so it's a thing that you can find out there that protects you in the game for a bit. You can play it and if you get voted off, you're oh, not actually okay, voted okay, off. Okay, yeah, yeah. So we'd moved and then I went back to this old camp and I was hunting in a tree. I was searching and I had a camera crew with me and I'd learnt this thing from a guy called Russell Hance who has played Survivor and got to the end twice by finding idols that if you go to a spot searching for an idol and you go back to your original camp but then you go out again to the same place, if the camera crew follow you, there's a good chance you're onto something. So I did that and they followed me and I'm like, okay, I'm onto something. So I'm in a tree, I'm hunting and they're asking me what I'm doing and I'm telling them this, I'm trying to find an idol, I think there might be one here. And as I'm doing this, as I'm up in a tree, this girl, Brooke, who's this beautiful um, girl who was on the sh on my show, a friend of mine, and she was in a bikini. She's walking up towards me and she's like, Maddie, what are you doing? Looking for coconuts. I'm like, oh, I'm getting some of the rope down from our, our camp. I'll be there in a second. Oh, we're just going for a swim. Okay, I'll be there. I'll be there. Okay, cool. All right, we'll see you soon. And she walked off and I got away with it. <laughs> I looked at the camera, <laughs> big smile, gave him the big thumbs up. How that was edited was Brooke was talking to me, she walked away, they zoomed in on her bikini bottom as she was walking away, cut back to the creepy magician like in a tree, <laughs> big thumbs up. So I'm there watching this with my wife, my family and my friends and I'm there like, because in my head I'm just remembering what happened and I'm going to care of my wife, pretty good, eh? And she's like, excuse me, what the hell was that? <laughs> And I had to watch it back to go, oh, yeah, that's not great uh, and had to explain what happened. So, that, um, yeah, that was an interesting situation where it probably wasn't edited exactly how it happened. Crazy. But, yeah, I mean, that was, kind of the, that was kind of the fun of it as well. You didn't know what to expect. And I became quite close with the publicity manager of Survivor and um, she would be pretty good and she would say, hey, Matt, look, there's something that came out you might – Twitter might be a bit angry, so just be aware of that. So I was at least aware, okay, something might come up and um, I was kind of able to prepare myself for it, at least a little bit mentally. That uh, I mean, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. 
Uh, have you seen that TV show Unreal? Bro, it is exactly the same. There is the producer, I don't know what her name is on Unreal, <gasps> but she, I'm adamant that she was put together by someone watching one of the producers on my show. She sounds, looks and acts the exact same. Like that, Scary. You watch that show, it really, it, it makes you realise I think there's a lot of truth in that. That is exactly what it's like. I'm certain... It's funny. I know, obviously, I've followed Survivor since I was on it and I get to talk to the people that have been out there before it's aired. At the moment, a friend of mine was just on Big Brother. It's been filmed. It hasn't aired yet. And I'm seeing him go through the exact same experience that I went through and I've had to be like, dude, just just settle because it might not be exactly what you expected. And he's like, no, there's no way they can edit me to be the bad guy. And I'm like, there is a way. If they want to edit you, they will edit you however they want to edit you. Yeah. So don't just be aware of that. Well, Ollie makes me look good. So there's a, there's proof. But one day, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did this did this make you be more aware um, of recent, I noticed that you've, you're an ambassador for Hutt Street Centre? Mm-hmm. Was it anything because of what happened on the show or how you personally were feeling? I mean, a, a show that's, um, oh, I forgot what it's called. It's on SBS. It's about um, uh, Filthy um, Rich and Homeless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I actually watched it. I know of a couple of people that have been on it. I haven't spoken to them about it, but oh, fuck, that show really makes you think, oh, feels so, like, you know, how lucky we are to mm. live how we do and live in Australia. And then, you know, I now, t- I, I don't know what it is, but that show single-handedly made me, you know, when people coming up ask for money, like, unfortunately these days you fucking don't have cash. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I'm about to give them a square reader and an iPhone. like, uh, But they come up and I've always like just sho- You've got plenty. Yeah, I've, I've just sh- I'd shove them up. But now I like stop and I'll, I'll ask and I'll talk. But I was never like that before. Mm. I was like, fuck off. Like, mm. And now that show single-handedly changed the way I feel. And... I think that's the impact of of watching a show, whether it's on YouTube or TV or or a movie. If there's something that can emotionally change you that way, I think it's for the best. Mm-hmm. Your what, what's what are you do, what are you trying to achieve with Heart Street? It's funny. I think I had a, a similar sort of weird moment with me in that sort of scenario. In that, I am probably five years ago. I um, obviously thought I was a bigger name than I was at the time. And I went and bought a lot of merchandise. Like we're talking hundreds of Matt Tarrant T-shirts, thinking they are going to sell like hotcakes. And I had a merchandise tent outside of my little show every night and I reckon I sold about three shirts over a whole festival. People weren't that keen on Matt Tarrant (laughs) T-shirts. I think my mum and my stepdad bought a couple. That's about it. Um, So then I had a lot of T-shirts taking storage up and I decided to give them to Heart Street Centre. Um, because at the time, a one of Kira, my wife's um, cousins, worked there, I think, and I thought, hey, it's a good, you know, come to a nice, good use. And we were walking down Ronald Street one night, and there were two guys sleeping on the streets, both wearing Matt Tarrant t-shirts. And um, yeah, it just, I don't know, just that that that's really hit me and went, oh wow, like for what for me was rubbish is these guys, it's keeping them warm tonight. Yeah. Um, and you know, I have done uh, a little bit of stuff with Bikuma, um, which is a charity for um, people with disabilities as well and, and Hutt Street Centre. And I think for me uh, that kind of comes down to my mum. My mum 
is a principal at a special school, kids, uh, school for kids with really full-on intellectual and physical disabilities. And I've always kind of grown up with her um, caring nature and minds. And I kind of thought for me, I'm in a position where I have some form of influence or at least some form of uh, status as much as I hate that word. Um, so while I have that, I might as well do some good with that. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. With Barcuma, we recently had one of our employees from Woodcroft uh, retire and she, she'd been with us for 20, 19 years and she was affiliated with um, Barcuma. I think she's a Barcuma ambassador. Mm. So it's a small world. It's I, I get to do their graduation or their transition ceremony every year and I get to go there and do a bit of emceeing and a bit of a story and maybe a trick or two and um, – it's it's one of the, my favourite nights of the year just because you get to see these kids who a lot of people, if they saw them, wouldn't realise what they could do and what they're able to do. Yeah. Um, but when you actually actually have a chat to these people and realise what they can do and what they can achieve and they can just do what we would consider a normal thing, it, it's it's quite amazing. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think I'm just very – I understand that I'm very privileged. I'm a, a middle-aged white man living in a, a first world country. Very privileged. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't want to take advantage of that, um, but I want to try to give as much as I possibly can whenever I can. In the top percentile in the 7 billion people on the planet. So yeah, exactly right. extremely fortunate position to be in. Okay. Now we have some questions that we ask. Yeah. Everyone. All right. The pretty tough ones come out. It's all been pretty. I mean, based off the rest of the interview, I'm expecting these are going to be highly intellectual. And um, fortunately, I've got a PhD in absolutely nothing. <laughs> so we should be okay here. Rightio. So if you weren't doing what you're doing now, Matt Tarrant, mm-hmm. what would you be doing? And it could be anything on the planet. Money's not an object. Oh, that's tricky. I, you know, I'd like to be able to play sport. I think I'd like to be able to be good at a sport, whether it be footy or NBA well, maybe. One? You've got to pick Basketball one. or football. Okay. They're my two favourites. Though I don't mind soccer as well. Okay. And I can't like so original you football. You kind of look like Ronaldo. Yep. Oh, mm-hmm. I, reckon, I reckon that's like when the, the fat Ronaldo. Is that what we're saying? Like, um, yeah, like I definitely could see myself. I'd love to play a sport. I'd love to be good at it. So um, professional athlete. Yeah. Okay. But I just because I know that is so out of my range and reach <laughs> <laughs> that I think I have to kind of extend upon my limits to do that. But I think that'd be quite cool. Okay. Um, what do you wish you'd known now when you first started? Like, what do you wish you'd known now when you first started out? And what advice could you give to the sixteen-year-old or fourteen-year-old Matt Tarrant out there? Uh, I think you have to value happiness more than most other things in life. Um, you know, I think when I first started uh, working, uh, you know, it was more about money and wh- where would money lead me and that sort of thing. And um, obviously money helps pay the bills. It helps you have a, a great life. But um, happiness should always be number one. And if money is a thing that follows after that, um, that's great. But you'll be a much happier um no matter what when it comes to finances. And we say it, it's another big thing, you know, find what you enjoy, find mm. what makes you happy. Sometimes, you know, the equation isn't the money that you need, but if you're happy doing it, it doesn't quite feel as much like work. Mm, absolutely. And I think, it, you know, if you do something happy, 
that you make say happy sorry, you're eventually going to become really, really good at that thing yeah. because you want to do it and you're yeah. happy doing it. So eventually money will come no matter what that thing is as well because you will become one of the best at it. And you know, I, I think you, you see that very early on in school with kids that excel at things because they really enjoy it. Mm. Like I was pretty good at PE. Mm. And then you have kids that are excelling in things not because they enjoy it, but it's what happens when they leave that environment when getting a grade, no, realis- the re- realistically getting a grade doesn't determine anything that happens in your life. Absolutely not. And it's interesting to see, and now I've got two young girls coming up through school and you, you watch them and you just think, you know, what are, what are they going to do? Like, mm. And I think back to myself, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And it comes back to do something you enjoy. Mm. That's tick number one. And if you can do that, then I think the rest flows on that. Some of the most amazing people in my life I know right now don't know what they're doing now and they don't know what to do in their life. And that's sometimes what makes them amazing. Yeah. And most people actually don't find out what makes them happy. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I know magic makes me happy right now. But um, next year, I don't know if it's still going to be the same. And yeah. you have to be adaptable to that as well, I think, and follow what makes you happy. And if that changes, um, be okay to change. And have, it takes courage to change too. Mm, absolutely. Uh, that That's why I got into magic, mate. I was working at a bank and I was working in a call center and I was surrounded by people every day that would always tell me, oh, I want to do this. I've got this business idea. <laughs> I want to be able to do this in my life. And for nine years that I was there, I heard the same story from the same people. And I looked at myself and went, oh, my God, I'm that person. I keep saying I want to do magic and I'm not doing it. So let's not do this anymore. So I I left and I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't have any income. I didn't have any jobs. I had nothing. But I went, look, at least I'm giving it a go. Worst case scenario, go back to what I was doing. Back to what you're doing. It's great advice. If there is one thing that you could do, that would have an impact on the world, what would it be? Oh, it's a tough one. That's a really I mean, tough one. It could, could go along a lot of places. Oh, that is a really, really tricky one, I think. Um, I think the idea of everyone being happy is a really nice thing. And that is obviously a a different measure for so many different people. But I think that is an important thing that people need to to work out what their happiness is, at least right now, because I think from there you'll be able to take your life wherever you want to take it. And I think but I think that's a really important place to start. So that's maybe something that um, you know, no one's ever gonna be able to do that, I don't think, in regards to helping everyone do that. But if um, some of my lessons, the things that I've learned along my career help some people, at least one or two people find that, uh, yeah, it, it means it's all worth it for me. I I think um, I think Vin mentioned happy, but he said half the world. And then, and then he realised, oh, hang on, if I can make the whole world happy. You might as well do that. <laughs> you might as well do that. It's very funny. <laughs> me and Vin, for two people that are very different, we have a lot of similar headspace thoughts, I think, sometimes. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. It's the same, same similar answer. I, I think, do you, do you believe the people that are around you is who you aspire to become? Absolutely some of them, yeah. I think you have to surround yourself by – I know some people have this opinion of you have to follow – you have to surround yourself by the people um, about who you want to be like or who you want to become. And yeah. obviously there's an element of that as well. Yeah. But I'm also surrounded by people that are that are fun 
And, you yeah. know, that, that brings me a different sort of happiness as well. I've got a variety of different friendship groups that I think allowed me to become the best that I could be in that scenario as well. Um, in that situation, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly who I want to be across the board. Um, but eventually those numbers sort of dwindle down a little bit and I have a core group of people that as a general rule, there's elements of those people that I want to be like. I think you change those depending on what you're doing in life. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my, my friends aren't the same friends they were when I was in school. That's for sure. Um, yeah. Mainly because I didn't have many friends in school. Um, but I was going to say that. <laughs> but I, I mean, I can't imagine a whole bunch of leading comedians hanging around with a bunch of accountants or lawyers. Like you wouldn't, you, think you, you so. wouldn't think so. But those, you'd be surprised to know the amount of leading comedians who actually are leading lawyers as well. There's actually quite a number of them. I would be surprised. I think um, I would introduce you to a few. Um, I, I went through a situation a couple of years ago where uh, a festival I went through went uh, through liquidation and I lost a lot of money. And one of the other comedians who also lost a lot of money was a lawyer and who helped us through that scenario. Well, my wife wants to be a comedian. Any funny? Uh, yeah, she's really funny. Are you saying and that because there's a camera right there? Or? No, no, she was, a, she was a lawyer too. Okay. So. okay. <laughs> uh, no, no. They're funny people, lawyers. Well, I tell you, they don't fucking forget anything, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so, so this, we, we're going to have one more question. Like uh, This has been our longest podcast, yeah? It's three hours. That guy that said the other night Fuck. that I talked too much was bang on, wasn't he? Should have done more tricks. Should have <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Where's his review? A five star. I'll send him the podcast. He's uh, going to yeah, hate he, it. He's oh, going to learn so much about me. Oh, awful. <laughs> so i got one more question. This is a tough one. So <laughs> if you died. Oh, wonderful. And came back as a board game. What board game would you come back as? Now, there's been a varied response. A bit of uh, Yahtzee, no. Snakes and Ladders, no. Chess. Uh, Vin, Vin said chess, actually. Yeah, he's the first person to say chess. But, I mean, there's a few. I don't, I've almost, I'm always coming to a conclusion, like, I'll just talk so you can think because you, you're trying. I've almost thought like a, a video game I should be able to introduce. Like some people probably never played a board game. Have you? No. So maybe he, maybe I add a video game like Lemmings, <laughs> oh, Wonder Boy, always fighting the good fight, Sonic, you know, that funny-looking hedgehog. I think, I think a video game would be easier, but I, I feel like for me a game like Mousetrap. Wow. And that is because there's a lot of a variety of different elements and strange and hilarious things in that game. And you look back at that game and you remember that being the most fun and incredible game you could ever possibly play. But um, it's the one that- there's a weird thing about it where I feel like if we were to play it right now, it would probably actually suck. And no, I feel like it's a good game. No, I, I wrote, play it again now, it would suck. Guaranteed. I'm looking at it now, it's, it's got... It lo- looks fun. It looks fun. But there's elements behind it which aren't actually as fun as you'd imagine they would be. It's complex too. Look, that... There's, yeah, there's yeah. definitely elements of that, but I just kind of feel like there's elements of my life which um, also probably suck and people don't see that from the outside perspective. You look at that really nice, fun, complex, colourful, stupid game, but um, there's elements of it which you 
if you were to eventually play it now as an adult, you go, oh, it wasn't actually that great. And there's maybe weird elements in my life that are like that as well. Um, there's a lot of really cool, fun, exciting things, but it was also behind that some um, weirdness, boringness, and I kind of like that as well though. That's why I like Mousetrap. That's a cool answer. And when checking out that game, <laughs> it does actually show a lot of what you've talked about. That's a, that's a nice way to put it together. I'm like the marble going down that <laughs> stupid slide. That's me. So Matt Tarrant. I'm not going to say, I'm definitely going to say see him at the Fringe 2021. We're so lucky to have um, such a blessed performer here, someone that's so passionate in what they're doing and it's, it's, it's really come across to me. I've looked at stuff on YouTube and that's what you see on YouTube and Facebook and reading about what you write and what you put together and seeing it and hearing it for such a long period of time. So lucky to have, you know, such a, an amazing performer in what you do and the skill and that what you provide and not only to just just us in this room you give this out to every single other person that's listening any young magicians out there that are, are hearing this wanting to be I'm sure they could reach out to you and you'd have some words of advice for them and I'm just we're so lucky to be able to have you here um this will be released before the fringe engine so get get your ass in there and if not start booking you in for shows because I'm sure that's the bigger picture in place. You never know. There might be some YouTube channel here. Maybe. Ollie could edit it. Maybe. You never know. Oh, you never know, mate. You never Red, know. We get Red Look, Bull or Monster responses. Yeah. Uh, Red, Red Bull. No, I don't think they've got a magician. I uh, don't know if they nah, do. Nah. No, we'll have to nah. find one for them. There you go, Red Bull. Um, <laughs> but really lucky to have you here. You've you've kind of left it really vague about what's going on with how some of these tricks have come about. <laughs> That's as good as you're going to get. Fucking the numbers and remembering them, but you really, it does come across in your personality and being honest, authentic. They're all the things we talk about. Perfect fit for our show. Thanks for coming on board. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. Sweet. Thank you.